Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, BladeDisgusting.com's Dead Pixels horror video game podcast, delivering a horrifying new episode every Saturday. I'm one of your hosts, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Ball. And this week we're chatting our favorite games teased and shown off during uh, this year's E3. So we've uh, managed to survive another E3, Neil, and uh, you especially. Shout out to all the coverage that uh, you and <laughs> others have uh, done. It's probably the most exciting time of year but it's also the most hectic time of year for uh, all of us oh yeah i mean like um i think i will forever regret that in the week leading up to it when i should have been sort of taking it easy on the old hands um i decided to play a shit ton of chivalry too and that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah the way of playing games like that really does cramp my hands up because i play too <laughs> yeah i went into e3 week with just like crap hands and uh, <laughs> like i've still not quite recovered despite not really playing any games for a few days, which is uh, <laughs> unfortunate, but there you go. Um, but yeah, it's, it was all right, I think, in terms of coverage stuff. There was, I expected Xbox to be a place where most of the uh, juicy stuff would come from, and it was very true. It was the same last year, really, even when they didn't have all these new studios and games that they, they sort of packed their stuff with horror games because they get it. I think that horror games sell on the system. So yeah, it was a, it was a fruitful time. Yeah, there was nice surprises here and there. And, um, you know, despite a year where, you know, we were still sort of hitting that pandemic problem of, you know, stuff not being ready to show, there's still a fair bit to get excited about for the next 12 months or so. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they did a great job of kind of showing off things that we were expecting, but there's also a lot of great kind of surprises from maybe whether it be indie studios and this is kind of like their first game or rather... If it's something that is maybe a sequel that's based off of a game that maybe didn't necessarily get a great deal of fanfare around it. And now, hopefully, with like the announcements of sequels and things like that, it will allow people to kind of go back maybe and look at a couple of games and whatnot. But I really think that the only place for us to start in terms of which game to talk about is uh, Somerville from Jump Ship mm. Studio, which I think initially I was like, well, this looks a lot like limbo and inside and then oh hey what do you know <laughs> jump ship was uh, a studio that was co-founded by a founder of playdead uh, uh dino dino patty, yeah, dino patty. and uh he also worked on limbo and inside both of them so that's obviously why somerville kind of shares <laughs> similarities but at the same time i think we and you and i um in the future will uh, release an episode all about inside and i think that yeah. one thing that we were talking a lot about with where that studio goes next, I think we're going to get that with Somerville before we even see what comes from Play Dead later in the future, right? It's this idea that we're going to see something that maybe from afar looks familiar, but at the same time, I saw a lot of elements in this short trailer that really make me excited for sort of this not just seeming like it is going to be what they did at Play Dead and just kind of seeing how they're able to take sort of that influence from their previous two games, but now moving in a new direction and kind of evolving on that in an exciting way. Yeah, and I think they're taking the cooperative single-player mechanics of Inside a bit more, you know, and evolving that now by having a whole family unit to sort of look after and control and work puzzles around. And the background story is a bit more in your face here. You know, it's like an ongoing alien invasion and... They're having to live through it and but having to live, try and live normal. And it's, that already is very fascinating, despite the 
you know, ramping it up to something that is more blatantly obvious what's going on. There's, there's bound to be some mysteries and strangeness to it all that it feels you know, alien. And that's been the beauty of games made by you know, Dino Patti before, is that you've had that sort of ambiguity to it that ends up being uh, enough for you to do an entire episode on, like, but we, you will hear from us in the future. <laughs> the one thing I keep thinking when talking about it this last week was like, Oh yeah, so this is the podcast. I went, I keep going to share the podcast, realizing we hadn't actually released that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like, going, oh yeah, we'll talk about it inside. And this and so, yeah. <laughs> um, but we do have, um, oh, bloody disgusting this next week, either just before the episode, this episode goes out or just after. Uh, Mark Delaney is doing an, an article on some of those, um, use of the alien story, but having it grounded in humanity. Mm. It's a, you know, a, read it and it's a very interesting good read how they could sort of make this new sort of kind of game you know because they've dabbled in sci-fi before in terms of inside you know that there but this is very much like more grand spielberg-esque you know sci-fi with that sort of play dead sense of dark humor which and that that alone just makes me think yes you know the 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 game Super 8 should have been as a film, you know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, and I think that not only from, like, the presentation, it's seeming somewhat familiar because it is, again, that kind of, like, 2.5-dimensional mm. environments, but from that trailer, it felt like a more cinematic and a more involved, almost, sort of more yeah. energized portrayal of that type of 2.5D environments, but also, like, the immediacy of what's happening. I mean... A lot of times with games like Limbo and uh, Inside, a lot of moments in those games kind of felt like, again, you're exploring something, you're exploring a world that has already had its cataclysmic event. And now being in the heart of that cataclysmic event, it's going to be interesting to see how that kind of factors into the story in a way that, like I said, is more energized. I mean, at one point, there's these kind of like monolithic, uh, I assume, alien spacecrafts that are hovering in the sky and you can see them. And then in the next moment, they're crashing down into the environment that you're in and you're kind of like fleeing from it. And I think that that has a lot of sort of my expectations for this are, is there going to be more to gameplay than what we had seen in a lot of Play Dead's previous games? This idea that those games are very simple. I think you only had three options or something. It's like run, jump and uh, interact or push items. And the more energized look of Somerville and sort of how that comes across in gameplay I'm curious what that might look like. Then, sort of, how are they able to maybe evolve on gameplay in a way that can interact with maybe, I hesitate to say combat focus, but I'm just thinking in terms of there's a clip in it where you and your family are fleeing, and then there's this figure that's near you that's in almost like a protectorial role of sorts where it looks like it's covering you. It's like firing lasers at a threat that is conveniently off screen, and we haven't seen it yet. But it makes me think is there going to be an element? like that maybe there's a more defensive role if i hesitate to say offensive i find it difficult to believe that they would include something like combat um which could overshadow a lot of sort of their very methodical approach to storytelling and environmental storytelling at that but i think for me what made me the most excited was the idea of like the family unit because throughout the trailer there's multiple shots where it's the character playing the husband and then he's by himself There's another scene where it's him and the dog exploring like a cavern. And then it's the entire family unit that are traveling together. And 
I'm really interested to see how that comes across in gameplay, whether it be sometimes you're uh, controlling various members or if you're using them for specific tasks or something like that. I mean, mm-hmm. I just think about you have uh, a dog, obviously, that could kind of like fetch things for you, but you also have a toddler, it seems, or a small child, right? And maybe there's yeah. potential for the type of uh, family dynamic role where it's like, you, oh, I can send the small child into this area that this full-grown man can't access, things like that. Yeah, and I think in terms of what we're used to, that, that that's where a lot of dark nastiness can come from because, you know, the games, we've said before, have that bleakness towards children. That means you know, that, that they probably get away with it a bit more here, even if they don't have the structure behind it to sort of excuse it a little bit. And I don't know, the way it looks structured and from what has been said, it sounds like it's going to be basically starting as the father and sort of trying to find each family member across this war-torn environment. What War of the Worlds and Spielberg's War of the Worlds when I, I think of that again this, when it comes back to it it has really got that kind of vibe to it you know and did have to pay Tom Cruise for it so it makes it on the cheap but, it's fine, so. <laughs> but yeah and that, that to me is a, a very enticing dynamic you know to sort of bring the family together and make them do very gamey things you know like you said about maybe using the toddler to get to those sort of spaces that no one else can get to which is a horrible thing to make a child have to do in, in any case, but when, you know, it's at any cost is pretty much what they're saying in the uh, promos and words for it. And so, yeah, I, I think it will certainly be retaining what we're used to in the, in the likes of Inside and Nimbo with a very grim, bleak outlook of some very black comedy, you know. Yeah. I think that's all we can really hope for. And uh, I th- also really just appreciate... The, again, like the more cinematic look at the world. And I mean, granted, it's yeah. also like the, obviously the pacing of that trailer, which I really like and how it sort of it introduces the family and then it goes through these kind of just scenic uh, escapes that have the monoliths yeah. in the sky and whatnot. But then it jumps right into like, oh, I'm exploring. And then, of course, the more uh, action oriented elements occur. And I just think that they do such a great job of setting the tone that it felt like a callback to those previous games that we've mentioned a couple of times that we both enjoy, but this just seems like it has a spark to it that I really wanted from the next Play Dead game if I got to see that, which we unfortunately did not see anything from that. So for the meantime, Somerville will have to do, and I'm very much looking forward to uh, getting getting our hands on that. And it seems like that was announced for next year, correct? 2022? Yeah, Hopefully. yeah. It's uh, not too far off-ish, you know, give or take. <laughs> Um, the way that the year's gone already, obviously, it won't be as long as it seems. Uh, but yeah, it will be good. It will be good to have that. How about you? What was something that jumped out to you uh, at this year's E3? Um, so yeah, that would have been in my initial sort of five main picks. So I'll, I'll take something off the, the second squad, if you will, <laughs> here. But no less um, uh, no less of a thing. Um, it's also, for me, another a game from an indie developer whose game I love, you know, the last time around. And, really excited to see what they do next and that was um, Variable State's uh, Last Stop which is you know they, if anyone doesn't know Variable State made Virginia which is basically a very it was a wordless very cinematic cuts and everything um, very Twin Peaks X-Files type game um, you know down to the they actually had a very Mulder and Scully-esque 
a pair of FBI agents in it, you know, at one point. And it's, yeah, it was very difficult to describe as a game, but like when I say it's cinematic, it truly is in a sense of like there are scene cuts whilst you're still doing stuff, you know, so you'll be doing stuff and you'll go to another place or another area like that, like instantly in the next scene, like you would in a film, you know, and it's just remarkable. And, you know, at that point, you know, I had the X-Files sort of references to it. So and I think a lot of people were down on that game anyway because of Twin Peaks and, you know, if anything dares to try to be Twin Peaks, less, then, yeah, and it really does. I mean, down to the music, there's a track called Sojourner's Truth, which I love in that. And it is, in retrospect, very Twin Peaks sort of music. But, um, yeah, it's fantastic what they did with that. But last stop... Um, they're changing it up a bit. It's more of a gamey sort of style now. It's a single player, third person camera rather than first. Um, as I said, it's set in present day London. You play as three separate characters and they are all sort of interacting in this strange body swapping supernatural story. And yeah, you know, a lot's not quite known about what's going on, but there's some sort of, you know, there's these are all very different people. There's a school kid, there's, you know, this a normal guy going around doing his general business and it just becomes a very sort of strange mystery as to why they're all sort of body sharing and there's certainly some sort of mystical supernatural element to it as I said and it still sort of retains a bit of that um, art style of Virginia but a bit more um, details of it and yeah I, I like the look of this whole body swap thing they've got going on and looking like they don't quite have control over everything on it and yeah I just there's still so much I don't feel I know about it no but no it was very much the same with Virginia where I liked sort of the trailer and I was like well what is this going to be you know this looks very strange and all that but and it turned out to be such a wonderful thing I mean, and this time around, uh, Annapurna Interactive uh, Publishing, and, you know, they've got a great track record of picking games, you know, as it goes. And, I mean, what little clues there are to what's going on does seem to be some sort of experiment, maybe. So it has a lot of that sort of, uh, I hate to say Stranger Things, but it is kind of Stranger Things vibe, mm. where, you know, there's like, it seems like there's some sort of government involvement and there's something going on and, you know, there's... Seemingly like a rift to another dimension sort of thing going on that, that is what they're suggesting. And so, uh, yeah, like I said, you know, and some of it, but not enough, but just enough, I think, for me to be excited about it as games go. It's because of what they've done before. Yeah, I really, I mean, that jumps out to me as a really intriguing sort of narrative premise, the idea that you're basically working backwards to finding the origin of this mystery and kind of like unearthing mm. all of it through for however many character uh, perspectives and kind of picking bits and pieces of information from each storyline before you kind of jump from uh, the one body to the next. And yeah, I think there's uh, some really wonderful uh, com- uh, comedic elements I think could come yeah. from that, that idea of a lack of control over the supernatural body swapping and whatnot. So it'd be fun to see if them kind of play around with this sort of maybe tongue-in-cheek element of that. But also just, yeah, I think that that's a really intriguing premise. And I think, again, that's an experience that would rest heavily on uh, the writing. Cause I was looking at some screenshots a few minutes ago and it seems like you're going to pick, you have the option to pick different dialogue trees and things like that. Yeah. And so 
yeah, obviously the creativity of the mystery that ties you all together and then sort of the writing that carries you from one uh, interaction to the next and kind of ensuring that the writing is in line with each character so that way it feels like separate characters and not just these sort of vessels that uh, all have the same sort of sensibilities and whatnot. But yeah, that sounds like it has a lot of sort of narrative potential um, and reminds me I need to go back and check out Virginia. Yeah, and uh, just thinking about it, I think it's all of their stories are body swap based. I think. Oh, okay. The yeah, so I think the middle one, uh, yeah, looking back, it's like a middle-aged guy who ends up body swapping with a younger guy because that's what he yearns for, and there's some sort of curse. And, oh, I got you. And, yeah, and there's um, uh, and then it's the, the kid's story, and then there's the third one, which is like this ruthless professional, as they put it, and she's the one that discovers some sort of strange goings on in the basement of her work building. Hmm. Basically, all will interconnect together. Gotcha. So I think each of them will have something to do with why this is all going on. So, I like the sound of that yeah. even better because it's this idea that it's the central mystery that ties them all together, and yet each one of them sounds like a different sort of supernatural case. I really like that. That sounds that's much better than what I had uh, what I had envisioned for the game. Yeah, I mean, uh, plus points here. You know, um, Lyndon Holland, who did the composing for the last for Virginia he's back again mm. like I said, his soundtrack is one of my favourite game soundtracks around there he's him and the Prague Philharmonic Orchestra were all involved mm. and same again here my only slight concern with this is last time they didn't have any voice work you know it was all very done silently and deliberately and like even when they had like vocals in the songs occasionally it was very you know ah uh, sort of things um, you know, here it's very, you know, London Brown sort of uh, voice work, and that can go hit or miss with some things. I'm not sure about all of it yet, but you know, the game's not finished yet. I think it's out in July next year. Um, was it this year? No, it's this year, it's isn't this it? Year. God, I'm just saying. It's next month. <laughs> well, I, keep, I was excited about that very fact. There we go. <laughs> so, um, yeah, sorry, I just used to everything else being next yeah. year. You know, the halfway point of the year. Yes. Yes, you know, that's that was even better. The fact that it was coming so soon and get to sort of experience it. I mean, I'm, you know, last time around, you know, surprise factor to it. You know, I didn't know what this game would be like, and it totally blew my expectations away. I hope that's the case again this time. Even sort of going into it knowing something about it, you know, this time and knowing what they're capable of. Well, we will, yeah, you know, yeah, we will see. We will see. Um, so yeah. I'll pass it back to you for the next one. Yeah, well, we're keeping uh, keeping the theme going of uh, games that aren't going to be out until next year, <laughs> jumping from Somerville to my next pick. Um, I was so elated to see something from Stalker 2, Heart of Chernobyl. Um, I was yeah. a tremendous fan of the original and then was let down by the follow-up to the original. And then we had uh, <laughs> Pripyat after that, which I really loved as well. And just... It's one of those games that like we had heard about getting a sequel for so long and then they kind of uh, went off and they did these two other games that were multiplayer focused but they kind of existed within the same world but they of course mm. did not resemble what anybody that enjoyed Stalker, uh, the original, yeah. enjoyed. And so just to be able to see something running again and while what we saw I think is more of just like a general sizzle reel for people that maybe aren't super familiar with Stalker because it kind of felt like they were showing off more of the engine rather than maybe new gameplay additions and things like that. It was still just fantastic to not only see the game, to get a window for a release date and 
to allow us to just for fans of the series just getting to get a next gen continuation of this franchise i mean for people that don't know what stalker is it's this open world post-apocalyptic game that takes place in russia and it's this idea that obviously the uh chernobyl nuclear explosion the radiation has caused things to mutate in that area that's now called the zone uh it's much like the film stalker it's very much influenced from that and of uh the short story or the short novel roadside picnic uh, which is all about the radiated zone where there are these sort of artifacts that are alien in origin and kind of blending into the mutations that have occurred there because of the radiation and there's these groups called stalkers that are basically people that dedicate their lives to going into the zone and they battle all manner of mutants and bandits and uh, factions that have cropped up there Uh, so it's this open world first person shooter game that very heavily leans into survival and horror elements and again the trailer i think it did enough that it's going to definitely entice people that are into survival horror games that maybe aren't familiar with stalker whether that be because of sort of just the overall gorgeous nature of that trailer and getting to see this next gen stalker and uh, also the sort of just the atmosphere that we're really able to capitalize on in a way that i don't know the original stalker games ever met the true potential of that right for people that haven't played stalker the original three games while i really was into the first and the third one not so much the second one um they had this great atmosphere but they were very much sort of the along the lines of the stereotypical like eastern european developed games where it's this open world but it's very janky right you kind of hear about that yeah uh, element of a lot of these open world games that they're hindered by the technology or where the technology is at at the moment. And this seems like it is going to be able to finally capitalize on the true potential of this game series in a way that as a longtime fan of the series, like I could not be more excited for. Yeah. And so a few positives I took from this. Um, number one, you know, and this is a conversation we'll have in the future about game pass, mm-hmm. but it's on game pass when it comes yeah. out that straight away puts that in a place where people will check it out regardless of if it does end up having some of that jank again um, you know so people will give it a chance and that's what you want for games like that you know to, to, um, I think initially for a lot of people who weren't familiar with it there was a lot of Metro yeah. because you know Metro has taken taken over as this whole you know idea of like that kind of game and, which is you know, unfair because Metro is a very different game to Stalk, uh, you know, in so many ways. Um, the main positive I took away from film is that they did start defining how it was different, you know, and showing you the anomalies and things like that. And the trailer was set up in a very interesting way. It said, while it did look like it was done to show off what they could do with the engine and just show, like, almost proof of concept, Interspeeding that with um, slices of them telling this campfire story, you know, it worked. Mm. You know, in a, it was a very subdued, very normal way of doing things without it being all like over the top, bombastic sort of stuff. Which you know, you guarantee in most cases that's what would happen in the game. If they were sat around a campfire telling a story, everything would be over the top and crazy and all this stuff. Yeah, it's no, it's just sort of they are just putting it almost in universe and telling these stories as they are and what they, what happens out there and to these people who don't go into the zone it, it's very much like they're being told this wonderful 
fairy tale, you know, if, if you will, about what it's like to be a stalker. And I think that that really conveyed what these games can do well, you know, I think. And that, that's, that, that impressed me more than anything about that trailer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you're definitely right to mention Metro, right? And I think that this might mm-hmm. actually work in stalkers' favor in getting people to check it out. Where, while it remains to be seen whether people that are into Metro that jump on to Stalker 2 are going to like that it's an open world game and all of these other things that differentiate it from Metro. Um, yeah. That might work in their favor, though, as being the jumping off point for checking it out, in addition to it being on Game Pass. But yeah, I definitely appreciate the more subdued um, approach to just putting us in the world of Stalker because it sets the tone that there are multiple, there's a multiple variety of experiences, whereas to bring up Metro again, Metro is very much sort of one note, right? You're surviving in this world and you're constantly moving forwards. For the first two Metro games, it was very linear. And the third, uh, Exodus, is linear that blended with open world, but Stalker is much more open world from the jump. Um, And so I like that they're highlighting the multiple uh, types of experiences that you can have, whether it be something like a firefight, which anybody that plays Stalker you generally don't go running in kind of guns blazing, but I get why for that section to just to get it across and just to highlight like, yeah, you have weapons, you can put attachments on them, kind of just getting that out there. But I think the more interesting parts are the brief story segment where they have this interaction with a unique NPC, which is some kind of tinker mechanic that's like interested with music and things, which shows a little more personality in the 90 seconds that that moment plays for than Hmm. any of the other stalker games in terms of just like character personalities or unique NPCs. Majority, that was another element of the original stalker games that never truly met the potential because it was such a large world. You've got all of these NPCs and yet for me, none of them were memorable uh, other than maybe like one weapon they give you or something like that or one trait where the original trader and the original stalker is like a guy that eats mutated boar's meat or something like that. But again, it's don't even remember his name, so it's not memorable. But this shows promise in fleshing out characters more, which would, in essence, flesh out the narrative and make that more engaging, which was never at the core or my core enjoyment of the Stalker games. That The story was never really the drive. It was always, you're a mysterious man that wants to uncover his mysterious past. And while Stalker 2 could very much have another narrative similar to that, the idea that you might have more memorable milestone characters is something that as a yeah. fan of the past games is really, really exciting for me. Um, and even just the brief moment with the anomalies, right? Where you're walking through this field and you've got this kind of, it's like almost like a Geiger counter. And then you take these bolts and screws and you're throwing them to trigger the anomaly so you don't walk into yeah. them and get blown to bits. Uh, <laughs> just little elements like that, again, from what we saw, it's a reproduction of what we've seen in the past Stalker games, but we get to see the true visual fidelity now of the anomalies in a display of just how terrifying they can be. Because, I mean, in the trailer, a mutated boar runs into it and it explodes into 10,000 meaty bits yeah. or giblets and whatnot. Um, in the original games, when you'd walk into one of those, you would like spin in a circle, get damaged, and then get thrown out of it kind of thing, which was more goofy and janky than I think it was terrifying. But just in this brief moment of the trailer it makes what should be terrifying truly terrifying and just reinforcing how dangerous they are and that it's no laughing matter when uh, if you walk into it you'll get blown to bits yeah and i think the um 
sort of nuances that are now coming in, ironically, are more to do with Metro now uh, having established that, but not so much the games, but you know, Dimitri Kukovsky's books mm. uh, that the games are based on, which you know do really build this character, this world in where you know there are people who go to the surface, there are people who go out into the tunnels where it's dangerous, and you get these strangers who are very you know much personalities because of the fact they survive in places they shouldn't you know, and that aspect that's, you know, that's what I always liked about those books and then when the games have a little bit of that but you know Stalker as you said doesn't, hasn't really had that and I think the way Stalker is set up um, should allow for that a bit more than um, Metro which is very much still you know while they branch away from Glukowski's original stories each game they are still following a story you know and uh, a set of rules and Stalker you know has the opportunity here to sort of do something a bit fresher I think which uh, Exodus you know, Metro Exodus is a point where you know a lot of people dropped off Metro and some people loved it but um, you know I think it's a good time to sort of come in and be that game you know we're, we're not getting you know, a fallout for a while. Yeah, and uh, as I said, Metro's just had its third entry last year or so. So, yeah, why not? Good time to give Stalker to console players and Game Pass gives them a good opportunity to try it out, you know, and it's one of those games where I get the point of it being on Game Pass because it's a hard sell, you know, to to a console player initially. So yeah, to, to have it there as an option for people to check. Yeah, that's perfect. Right? Yeah, and it's definitely, I mean, you think about how long it's been since the last Stalker game. Yeah, there's no real brand recognition, especially for console players, because mm. it's been a PC game up until now, which is one of those things that, as somebody that grew up being a PC gamer, I would never, <laughs> I never would think that I would say that, but it's fantastic that it's coming to console. And there's the hardware that can really support it in the way that I think that world needs to be experienced on uh, consoles, right? It's this idea that yeah. not only taking a page out of Metro's book in terms of like capitalizing on these sort of post-apocalyptic mutant fervor of those games in the yeah. time since we've had a last stalker, but also just how gorgeous those games look and how that is a huge drive for audiences to experience those games on console. And now getting to get a stalker game and it looks like it, this will be the, uh, the best looking version of a game that's sort of shares some similarities to things like Metro. Um, yeah, I mean, something like Game Pass is just a fantastic win-win for uh, for both consoles and PC players because who knows, now if you get this whole new fandom on console in addition to PC, there's more incentive for them to further support and also to continue it. Maybe we won't have to wait another, I don't know, 10, 10 plus years for another Stalker game, so... Yeah, that's that very much the dream that and, and um yeah, as much as I have my plans with Game Pass, this uh, sort of presentation Xbox had this year has put some very interesting things on there. You know, um that we'll, that we'll get to, you know, and um yeah, some of those one of them actually we mentioned before, you know, so some of them say this is there, you know, other games are there that we mentioned and um it's genuinely impressive to have all these games be like I mean it's still sort of trips in my memory where I'm like oh I can't wait to buy that and we don't have to 
You don't have to. It would be there. You can buy it. You, you can just play it. Okay. I mean, in the job I'm in, I might be lucky enough to be playing these things beforehand, but you don't know. But um, it's yeah, it is just kind of weird in that way. You know, but probably less. It's probably more exciting for people who don't do this line of work because you know to get brand new games for Spectre it's not free but you know it feels right. free in the same way like when you get a big movie you know come onto a streaming service like that and it feels exciting and big and like that and whereas you know here it's like I'm not reviewing it but I'm getting it for free-ish and it's like that's weird it feels odd but yeah, it's genuinely a good start in terms of what they're doing yeah and I think I'll be an example of that of somebody that I have to budget out my year in terms of like how many new titles I'm going to buy. This mm. is removed of sales and all of that type of stuff. But it's like, how many new titles can I buy next gen titles every month? Not that many. So the idea that I can buy into a service and I think over the course of the year, we will probably talk more and more about some of our criticisms of Game Pass and kind of like what that means for the yeah. industry as a whole, right? Nothing is this sort of golden goose that only gives out these benefits. There are drawbacks and things which we'll definitely highlight, but for the moment, and as somebody that just recently got a, uh, a Series S, the idea that I'm going to get new games on day one release and it's included in a subscription. Um, and so it's one of those things where, yeah, if I come home on a Friday after a long ass week and I just want to have a couple of beers and play games and, oh shit, I've got the this brand new game at my disposal and yeah, which you can pretty in most cases pretty installed. Yeah. You know, it's like at least it's yeah, it makes sense. But for now, I think it is working in the short. In terms of what's next, what uh, what else was something that jumped out to you, whether it be indie or triple uh, A? Well, you know, let, let's keep the Game Pass train rolling <laughs> here. And um, but you know, from the what is now I suppose first party Xbox. Uh, into this and that is Arcane Austin's Redfall mm. which um, you know in a year of you know, fairly underwhelming sort of E3 you know, in terms of you know it, it came back under lots of stress and duress from doing some very bad things with people's public details and stuff mm. yeah but um, <laughs> private details but you know this season it was nice to have this sort of season again where we were actually having a week of stuff, not like 10 months of stuff, uh, pretending to be summer. I mean, that's still happening to a degree, but yeah, I digress. <laughs> but yeah, Xbox's show has, in past years, been laughable to me because there's a lot of gloss and sheen about, oh, look at this, look at this shiny thing, let's have a fucking car on stage because why not like that and so it just and lots of empty promises and this year with the acquisition of Bethesda they have now got this arsenal of games from a company and you know Bethesda's conference in the past has always been my favourite mm. you know when it comes to E3 because there's always something I like in it that I really enjoy and want to play almost immediately on seeing it. I think of Prey, I think of, you know, Wolfenstein 2, uh, I think all those things like that. And here, you know, Arcane Leon, I'm making Deathloop, which I will probably be one of my favourite games of the year when that comes out. But then to see Redfall, a vampire game, you know, co-op vampire game if you want it to be, mm. 
you know, class-based systems, if you will, it's you know, vampire left for dead, maybe to a degree. We shall see. But that was like golden goose moment, you know, for me. It was like <laughs> Arcane doing a horror game again. You know, the, the team that did Prey doing this. And sure, you may have slight concerns. They're making a multiplayer game straight after they joined Xbox. That feels a bit telling. Mm. But, you know, this is clearly a project they had it on the go before that, and uh, because the game is out next year. And, yeah, just, you know, we didn't get to see gameplay here. This is, you know, you could go by the old, uh, no, no, you know, if you don't show it, you know, you do really deserve real hype. But I think in the case of a company like Arcane, you know, whether it be Austin or Leon site, um, they've earned it for me. Uh, I mean, I see anything from them and I think, fuck yeah, I, I want to get into this. And I haven't been proven wrong anything in recent years because every time you end up playing these games that they make and they knock out the park, you know, and everything I see of them subsequently ends up being, you know, a catalyst to make it more exciting for me. And this just feels like the most on-the-money brilliance for me of all. And I think, you know, vampires and vampirist weapon, you know, fighting weapons and this class-based system and that personality that Deathloop is showing is there as well and you know they're a very collaborative um, company you know the, the studio Leon shares with the studio and Austin back and forth with, with things and ideas and I think that definitely shows through in, in what they've shown from Redfall and there just aren't enough great vampire games you know I said this back when uh, Don't Nod you know The Life of Strange Dead made Vampire and you know for all of its issues and jankiness I found it quite compelling and refreshing to have this proper vampire RPG from a company that isn't going to take 10 years to release the actual vampire the masquerade (laughs) game that they're supposed to be releasing instead release about 10 visual novels in the meantime good as they may be and yeah so it's just wonderful to have such a big studio doing we were talking beforehand about uh, you know, I watched Buffy a lot again recently, and I just love that sort of you know sassy, humoured vampire killing action. And along comes a game that does it. You know, like that. I, I was yearning for a Buffy-esque or Buffy vampire game, and this is you know not that necessarily, but it is very much that sort of you know, dark humour to it, and you know, that great style. And I'm, I'm really this is probably my greatest highlight of everything we've seen this last week because of the studio that it is and because it's vampires. Yeah, and I think two things um, I definitely agree with that you said in terms of they have a great track record, so I think they do earn that, right? The idea that they can show cinematic Mm -hmm. and they don't need to show gameplay and we are going to trust based on their track record that they are going to deliver an experience that is in line with what is at least displayed in this Cinematic, right? It's going to adhere to the tone. It's going to adhere to the sort of differentiating classes and whatnot and personalities, but also equipment and gameplay style that goes with those. I think they have earned that right. And that's one of those things where yeah. it's like, well, we might be proved wrong, but it would be the first instance where they've had a game that didn't deliver on this very clear vision and unique vision at that. Um, I think also the idea that this game had, all, had already been in development and it coming to Game Pass 
I'm not approaching this with the hesitation that I might if it had been like, hey, Xbox acquired them, now you're going to make us a multiplayer game for Game Pass rather than you're making a multiplayer game that's coming to Game Pass. Um, I think that's a big distinction to make. Yeah, and they've been very explicit about, you know, well, you can play it on your own. Mm. You really, really can just play it on your own. And I'm intrigued. I know Leon Studio are the ones that tend to be more inventive in terms of their immersive sim stuff. And but they are pretty much saying this is kind of still got a lot of immersive sim kind of stuff to it, but as a team. And to me, that just sounds wonderful. And I think, again, going back on this whole back and forth between the studios, you know, Deathloop has a weird mesh of co-op and PvP, where, you know, the other person can come into your game and basically invade you as this person trying to stop you. But if they want to, they can help you, you know, and, and be your aid. And I love that. That's great. That's like having a sort of gray area between how you can uh, join someone is great. And I wonder if there'll be a little bit of that in this. Because when you think of um, like co-op horror shooters, of which there are many, and more coming this year and next year. Um, there tends to be the the hook to those is always about not how well you work together, but about when someone does something to basically betray you. You know, when because they're selfish or they want to get out themselves. And I love that little dynamic. And get, when you go back to Left for Dead, that's like that was always key to videos people made. That it was all about people fucking you over and. You know, when you're in a pinch and it feels very much like an apocalyptic thing, you know, you know, a foul back then captured that better than anyone in terms of zombie games. But, you know, you could be paired with a perfect stranger. They could help you for all these things. And then when the going gets tough, that they jog on and they, they are going to leave you in the lurch to be massacred. And yeah, so I hope there's a bit of that in here. I feel there will be because of the playful nature of um, Deathloop's co-op sort of PvP thing. So yeah, I, I yeah, I guarantee the more we learn about Redfall, the better it's going to sound as well. And you know, already starting out, it sounds fucking wonderful. So that's uh, brilliant for me. Yeah, I think I understand that you can either play it solo or multiplayer and. The thing that I'm usually hesitant about with multiplayer games that are class-based is this idea that largely a majority of them, they're going to facilitate a certain role with familiar weapons and things like that. And one Mm. of the things that really stood out to me about Redfall was the sort of unique, very vampire-centric nature of all of the tech and the gear that uh, is displayed in the cinematic, right? There's like a UV ray launcher. There's a multi-stake launcher. There's this like little robot that can like propel himself at people um there's more there's the sort of mage character um and i like that there seems to be a supernatural variety but also like tech focused equipment uh that's very specific Mm. to this world and i think that if they continue with that and it's in line with sort of like the humor and the sensibilities that are displayed in the trailer i just i'm really a fan of when the tone comes across in the tools that the player gets to play around with um, something kind of like sunset overdrive right you kind of have these yeah. ridiculous weapons that are used to kill these horrific monsters and i'm really a fan of in redfall 
each of the characters seems to have their own personality and a way that is more so, I guess, at the root of everything, like you're going to have the the tech, the medic, the magic, the the tank or whatever. But there's still a personality that comes through and there's enough distinguishing features that it doesn't feel that rudimentary. It feels like this yeah. game is evoking a tone and a personality and a spunk that is all its own. And that has me excited for something that I might actually play the multiplayer portion of other than just a uh, single player, which is my usual go-to uh, inclination. But with something like this, I mean, I, I foresee you and I playing many rounds of this uh, when this is inevitably yeah. released. And it's one of those games that uh, has sparked my interest in a genre that I'm generally not the biggest fan of. And this mm-hmm. has really tapped into a lot of my sort of uh, the, my sensibilities in terms of the types of games that I play. Yeah. And, Considering all the games that have basically been announced before this, that is basically being this, it's very much telling that it's a company that have never really done that kind of game before, uh, making me the most excited for it because of what I know they can do. That's one that is slated for 2022. And if we're going to mm. keep with uh, highlighting stuff that we're not going to get our hands on for a little bit, but still very excited about, uh, I'm going to bring up a Plague Tale Requiem, which you and mm. I got to talk about A Plague Tale Innocence for the podcast a few weeks ago, um, and that was a game that I came to fresh and immediately loved, and so to so quickly experience that and then hear about a sequel that's going to continue the tale of uh, Hugo and Amicia, I'm like, again, not to overuse the word, but like, I'm elated that I get to revisit these characters in a world that we still don't know much about, but there's little hints to what they're building towards and the sort of direction that it's taking that it made me really excited for a 90-second trailer that has no gameplay in a way that uh, not many <laughs> studios can uh, elicit. Yeah, and right, something that was very clear from the off is like they are definitely more confident in terms of the visual style. Um, they've clearly picked an ending uh, in terms of where they're going with it. And which is great because they seem to pick the right one. I, I think in terms of continuing the story, and it, you know, because if they were, we said that time. I think if you were ever going to do the sequel, it has to be down a certain path, and it clearly has gone down that path. Um, also, great news is uh, we learned today before we recorded this is obviously the, the, the original game is getting remastered for next gen, the current gen. Next gen, current gen, what is it now? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, PS5, Xbox One, to, uh, Xbox One, Xbox Series X, it's an S, yes, right, yeah, those consoles. Um, and apparently, um, it may be a PS Plus game for July as well, by the sound of it, um, the remaster. So, they're going to re- hopefully give more people a look at it. I mean, it's already on Game Pass again, as we, we were pointing out before, and this will also be on. Game Pass. Um, one of the things revealed at Microsoft event, as I was saying earlier, they they really did just bring the noise, you know, in terms of uh, these horror games. We kind of knew this was coming beforehand because of certain leaked documents about the games coming, and yeah, it proved true, you know, down to the title, what it would be. It didn't stop it being exciting when it did come free. You know, it was nice. I was going to say, the thing with leaks is, is that, at least for me, I'm never one of those people that Obviously, I don't think it sucks when uh, people don't get to experience sort of the uh, the initial hoorah that people that fans get to experience when something's announced that they weren't aware of. But 
At the same time, mm-hmm. it learning about the leaks ahead of time, it didn't stop me from being excited at this coming to fruition because it's the idea that yeah, half the time leaks are more than half, like leaks are bullshit or they get so many different elements wrong that they think they're leaking. Like with, um, I think yeah. of The Last of Us 2, all the story details that got leaked or a majority of them were complete bullshit and didn't have anything actually yeah. to do with the game. Um, so to have a Plague Tale Requiem uh, leaked, but then it not interfering with my uh, joy at ha- getting to play the next chapter in the story so soon after experiencing the original... I was just yeah. happy that we get to continue in this world and it seems that it has a focus and a drive that we are going to get a sto- hopefully we're going to get a game that feels like it is a maturing not only of the developer but also the characters and I think that that came across yeah. in just the little brief moments where we see Amicia and we don't see her with a sling anymore. We see her with no, a knife yeah. where she's sneaking up and kind of shanking a guy and then she also has a crossbow on her back. And so those are two little moments that I hope I'm not reading too much into, but I think that it's an indication that we're going to see a narrative surrounding two characters that have matured far quicker than any children should because of the situations and the sort of trials and tribulations they endured as a result of in Plague Tale Innocence. And I'm really interested to see how they're able to show that in the follow-up and kind of how their tale is going to progress in a way that is reflective of that, because... If the game begins and they're immediately sort of behaving like they did in the past game, that wouldn't really line up with where you would hope that this is gone, right? You want to have a new experience that's reflective of their old experience, but only so much so in that it's not just repeating what they've already done. Um, and I think I'll be interested to see, of course, how the uh, the next generation of uh, technology allows sort of the uh and we see it briefly in the trailer we see the rat tornadoes evolving into more of a uh, rat tsunami in terms of just the, yeah. the swarms that are on screen again it was all in engine cinematic but chances are i would hope that they are going to evolve on that even more so in the gameplay in terms of just further uh, evolving and pushing that rat technology yeah i mean is it unreal engine they use before? i believe so if, if that's the case and they're using what looks like Unreal Engine 5 yeah. then yeah I think they'll be very confident in what they're doing in terms of using there's a few games indie games especially that have uh, sort of been shown off showing that um, stuff are off and they've looked remarkable in their character models so yeah I, I'd imagine with that a lot of the workload taken off I, they, they will really deliver a lot considering as we said then when we're talking about Playtale Innocence they made that game look so good you know what it was and that that surely yeah with this confidence and a big bigger budget guaranteed now that Microsoft have clearly given them the money to feel safe and secure and be confident I know we didn't really want to keep getting into this but therein lies maybe a good thing in this early days of Game Pass and funding is you can give an indie studio making a sequel to a cult classic you know, you can give them the money to see their vision through and feel comfortable and take the risks that they may not have taken and it's like, that's wonderful if that works out because then you get to see the game that they always envisioned and they don't have to make compromises. Compromises can be good uh, sometimes because they limit you in the right ways and 
force you into ingenuity, but at the same time, you are always left with this sense of what if. If they'd had more money, would this have been as good? Would it have been better? You know, and that I feel is something we will learn here with um, a Blade Tale Requiem. Yeah, and it's definitely, again, like in talking about Game Pass, and we won't know when Microsoft they kind of like struck this deal for it to come to Game Pass, but this is one of those golden scenarios where we get to highlight the benefits of it in that it's a studio kind of to all the to piggyback off all those points that you made. It's this idea that you're coming to a developer that has a foot in more than a foot in the door in terms of they did the first chapter in something and they want to revisit it. And now mm. having that budget to explore this world and these mechanics in a way they couldn't previously is the best case scenario, right? It's this idea, whether it be a game that's already in development like Redfall where Microsoft comes in and they're like, hey, we want this on our platform. We'll give you the extra boost to ensure that going gold might happen in a more timely manner or it will be an even more refined version of what gold would yeah. look like. Or it's this scenario where, hey, this indie studio wants to make a follow-up. Hey, Microsoft gets involved. We can now take some risks and we're confident. Whether or not Microsoft gets involved, they're going into the sequel more confident because, hey, we have this game. It's a cult classic. It's been received well. We've gotten the green light to go ahead and make a sequel and whatnot. Um, yeah. And I think that those are the two sort of best of scenarios in terms of when Game Pass and Microsoft come into the mix. Granted, we'll get into some, uh, I'm sure we'll have examples throughout the years or months, probably, um, in terms of games where they were. it feels like they were developed for Game Pass, again, rather than yeah. being developed and then coming to Game Pass, which I think is a major distinction and one that sounds simple, but it's one we really can't lose sight of because that is at sort yeah. of the core of the conversation with Game Pass and Microsoft's poten- uh, influence, not potential, but their influence in whatever games are coming to Game Pass. Sure. Yeah, and you know that that is something we are talking about in a future episode uh, about uh, Game Pass's impact on horror and you know in gaming in general. But um, yeah, so we we will talk about that more then. Is it my turn? Was it your turn? No, it's my turn, isn't it? It's turn six of, of ten. So in terms of what I would pick next, uh, which is the sixth pick of our ten, um, tricky. Do I pick from my second list? Um, you know, I, I want to kind of keep it indie here. Just because, um, you know, a lot of the big games will get their big stuff and, you know, I've just done Redfall. So it isn't one game in particular here because it was a bunch of stuff shown at once, but uh, it's a indie developer that I love the output of and many of the developers in it. Um, and that's New Blood Interactive and uh, their sizzle reel at PC Gamers show, which was... Uh, one of the most refreshing things in, in a week of very uh, pedestrian routine sort of things, uh, you know, PC Gamer Show was up and down. And, you know, that's in the past been a very poor show. Uh, they had a bit more personality this year, which was nice. Right, not not quite Devolver levels of personality, but this year Devolver had that personality about their presentation, but the games really weren't there. Um, whereas PC Gamer had probably the right balance, you know, and, you know, for anyone who didn't watch, uh, New Blood Interactive are uh, a studio that have published lights of Dusk, uh, Airdorf's uh, Faith trilogy, uh, that, well, the third part, which coming through the Unholy Trinity. 
and the upcoming Gloomwood, which is as the URL for that game, is a thief with guns. And, and uh, yeah, so they make some really great games. And Dave Oshry, who um, is the head of that company, was there at the conference and um, they made a whole joke about him trying to announce all the stuff and getting interrupted by uh, Gabe Newell, which they actually did literally yeah. interrupt him with Gabe Newell, which was <laughs> hilarious. Um, but yeah, they had a scissor reel of like the games coming out, including Gloomwood, and like in it, they hid five like unannounced projects in the middle of a scissor reel for all the stuff they were now that they already had, including uh, you know, Faith the Unholy Trilogy by Edorf and uh, like I said, Gloomwood. And <laughs> it was just nuts that they managed to do that because I, I caught some of the stuff and they showed it in black and white whenever it was like uh, new stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's, that's a really cool way of doing things. I, I like that. It's And, you know, those couple of minutes that they did all this thing in the middle of the PC gamer show was like, I'm glad I sat down and watched this, you know, just for that, because it was just, it felt like the true independent spirit of, you know, indie gaming, because while we had, you know, these major indie game announcements that we talked about, like, some of them like a Plague Tale Requiem. They were all very much backed by you know, Microsoft, you know, in terms of you know, pushed out like that. And not to say that you know, PC gamer is you know part of future. And my, my feelings on future are very hostile. And, <laughs> <laughs> but um, all the same, you know, the way it was done and presented here was very much like, yeah, do whatever you want and. It worked perfectly. Um, yeah, go to bloody disgusting. You want to sort of have a more intricate look about what was announced because it's still very early days in terms of a lot of it. But it was, yeah, really cool. Um, one of the um, one of them was a VR version of was it a medieval, which is one of the games that which that's cool. And then there were some other bits and bobs there, but it was. Like I said, not so much about being any one game, but it just felt like the stuff I've loved about being um, games that are probably disgusting in the last few years is seeing that bunch of developers sort of get together and make such cool stuff. Some of the stuff I've really loved so much. I mean, I think of Dusk being this throwback shooter that it is. It takes me back to what I loved about PC gaming back in the 90, late 90s when I started there and yeah it's got that modern touch to it and works now you know without aging and I just so many of their games are, are like that and I, I'm so appreciative that Edorf who hopefully will have on the show in the future um, you know he, his games are just Great as well, and then it's all, it's really cool to see developers like that at E3, you know, yeah. actually be there amongst all the big boys. And we say indie developers, you know, these are itchio developers, you know, like that. That is the core of what indie horror gaming is. You know, I'm sure at some point in the future, I think we'll really go into that because you know um, we talk a lot about 
indie horror on here in, in terms of games and big budget horror games. But there is the genesis of the next generation of horror gaming, you know, and a lot of the best ideas have come from there in the last few years. You know, whether they are what you know what you would consider game of the year things, maybe, maybe not, depending on your outlook. But I, I think as much as you know, frictionals, penumbra, amnesia sort of thing and all that influence big companies to sort of pursue horror again. I think the same will be true of all these up and coming developers who come through Itchio and come through places like New Build Interactive. It just made me feel very happy and not quite like we were just watching a procession of adverts for for a minute, you know, as much ironically as it was an advert, you know, for New Blood Interactive. It was just done with that sort of Troma-esque heart, if you know what I mean. You know, it's like, it feels like very independent, very like, we'll do what we want, you know, and... You know, someone's bound to pick us up. And in the case of PC Gamer, they did. So it was lovely to see. Yeah, I think describing it as trauma-esque in heart is the best way to put it. But at the same time, I would say what made that sizzle reel a standout is that everything that was shown, no matter kind of the graphical um, style that it's going for and whether Mm. that's intentional or limitations in certain regards, the tech and whatnot, each thing that is shown still stands out in a way whether it be the specific graphical style that's tied to that game or the mm. gameplay itself, I think it left an impression. And while, I mean, I'm not going to say like every single thing that was shown is something I want to play, but every single thing left a distinct impression and it didn't feel like a sort of just continuation of the last thing that we saw. And yeah. the clips of gameplay that we saw, I don't even know they were like, what, 15 seconds, if that, of gameplay. And yeah. it's so short and so brief and you're not given any real context for what you're seeing and yet, for me, I'm I'm drawn to every single thing that was shown in a way that I'm like, hey, I would play that. I would check that out, yeah. or I at least want to learn more about that. I think at the very least, with something like this, when you show, I don't know, four or five titles in a short span of time and getting me to at least want to look into them in the future, I think that's an achievement in and of itself. And not to say I'm this arbiter of great taste and whatnot, but <laughs> when you sit down for the course of E3 and you're watching, and this is actually ties into kind of like a growing issue that I think we've had with E3, like you had said, sort of when you're sort of just watching advert after advert, a lot of the time it feels like they're gravitating towards maybe, I don't know if I would say a trend, but it just, sometimes I get the sense of I'm just overstimulated with the same types of either emotions that certain games are trying to get out of you or just the general presentation of what certain games are and their kind of drive. It just feels like tonally sometimes we get into this sort of just oversaturated nature of, well, this year it's going to have the somber piano music tied to it and we're going to tap into your nostalgia or this is the year it's just action, action, action or survival, survival, survival. And to have little moments like this, like you're talking about, where it's something that is so foreign and completely different from what big AAA studios are doing, big developers, or even we say indie, but something like Somerville. You have to you think about who the studio head is and the experience and the capital that comes with that, which earns them a partnership with Microsoft for uh, X Pass, uh, Game Pass, and whatnot. You call it indie, but at the same time, it's kind of like the major leagues of being in the indie space. Mm. And to see a section of the indie space that, for the most part, 
is, I don't want to say minor league because that sounds like it's taking a dig at its qual- at their quality. It's just a reality of maybe the resources that are allocated yeah. to their size, the studio size, publisher size, what have you. And yet that space had the most creativity jam-packed in the 90 seconds that I think we saw for a majority of the show. And that's something that you and I have talked about previously. It's a conversation that we'll continue to have where the true indie space is where we're getting a lot of, and more specifically to horror, it's the space that we're getting these new experiences that are going to propel the overall genre to the next sort of experiences to have in horror. I mean, even something that was shown in that sizzle reel called Fallen Aces, which is this first person, uh, which is kind of like set in the 50s, I think. It's kind of like gangsters and flappers era. Um, But it has nothing to do with horror, and yet it has such a specific aesthetic where everything kind of looks paper mache-esque and you're kind of going through this beat em up and you're hitting guys with pipes and then shooting them and all these things just something like that it shows that this publisher is willing to take a risk on things that might not resonate with everyone but it sure yeah. as hell is unlike a majority of first person shooters you've played or anybody has played um, and I think that while there was definitely some great hor- looks at specific like horror influenced games during that sizzle reel at the same time, I'm appreciative that it was not all just horror because it's one of those yeah. things where whether it's a publisher or a developer or just, I don't know, disciplines in general, when you put all your eggs in one basket, again, coming back to oversaturated, right? If it's all horror, maybe that publisher is going to keep picking projects that look like the one that came before it. So to have this sort of varied portfolio, if anything, it means that they are willing to take a risk on things that might be outside of horror, but at the same time, their eye for drawing in or rather reaching out maybe to this sort of creative talent that is creatively different in multiple ways and doesn't look like a lot of other projects out there just kind of gives them this richer portfolio and a bigger foothold on the publishing game as it were. Yeah. And they can work sort of independent of the mainstream and, you know, PC gaming, the ironic thing about PC gaming is that, for all the talk of power and you know, what you can do with it, the real beauty is there's a wider scope for creativity. And games like this can exist because of platforms like Itch.io. You're not going to get a platform like Itch.io on a console, as it stands, because that audience... I mean, I look back to the start of the PS4, Xbox One generation, you know, and when PlayStation 4 was offering, you know, when they were offering PS Plus games being like indie games all the time, you know, at the beginning of that generation, the backlash to it was ridiculous, you know, because these weren't proper games and these don't throw back. People, you know, when you talk about the wider audience of gaming, they are very much obsessed with, you know, the big things, you know, and... This is very true of many mediums, you know, and goes back into this whole thing of content versus artistic value. And you go back to games like this, and while there are obvious influences, like any game, I think the the games like this, you know, like you can get stuff like Gloomwood, where it is, you know, like I said, the URL for it is blatantly beef with guns. They're not apologizing for that fact you know saying no this is why you'll like it this is why you'll think it's great if you grew up with beef or you love those kind of games 
here's a game like that, you know, like that. And we're calling you out effectively, saying, oh, well, you know, you pine for the old days of how games used to be, you know, like that. If that's the case, here you go. This is a game that, you know, encapsulates what worked about those old days, but we've made it work for now. And if you can't get on board with that, then you're lying. You know, you, you aren't really pining for anything. You're just like, you grew out of games you know, in, in that case. And I think that is what ends up being the case in that scenario. But again, like I, I will say it again, these are the developers that will end up shaping how not just horror, even horror games even, you know, they, they will shape how games end up being again when the market inevitably plummets and sort of envelopes itself at the high level because it, 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 it you cannot sustain the current level of gaming, you know, at the high budget level. And the last couple of years have already seen that be more of a thing. Not everyone is Microsoft, not everyone can just keep pumping money into stuff without any consequence because you know, they will you know a company like Microsoft have eaten up failure after failure after failure because they've made enough money elsewhere in their lifetime they won't have to care you know they can do it no other company can do that and unfortunately they're the companies that set where the other big companies go you know in terms of you know they will force game pass types deals to be the way you know, and eventually that will eat up a lot of developers. It'll eat up a lot of companies, and we will have a reset of some kind. You know, and, uh, and maybe the industry won't be as big as a result. But I think I'm comforted somewhat by non- the knowledge that we have people out here making games because of their love of games that were and what the, what they enjoyed about them and. Like I said, people like Edof, you know, people like Public Combo and IAD make that and beyond in the horror space have made such great games with such love for what horror gaming was and is. And they get it. And I, I think as long as there are people like that around, we will always have some sort of healthy level of gaming available. But uh, I think they are the ones to watch for in the future, not you know, the big companies who will eventually succumb to their own weight. Yeah, my thing is always with indie games is that, I mean, you're somebody that plays games constantly all the time. I'm somebody that doesn't have as much time as I used to have to play games, but I'm so when I do find time to play games, it's I want an experience that's unique. I don't want to mm. play something that is like the last two things that I've played the origin and the genesis of these games seems to be that it's coming from a place of passion for the games or the types of games that the developers clearly were fans of when they were developing these again to, uh, to bring it back to thief with guns. Like the inspiration is clear there. And yet that inspiration is a jumping off point rather than the entire purpose of the game, right? From what we've seen so far of gloom, uh, that game. And I think that that's one of those things that, it's kind of like with Dusk, right? It's Dusk probably plays the way we wish that games that looked like Dusk from back in the day played now, but of course they clearly do not play that uh, as well as our memory no, serves. No. And I think that that's another element to that nostalgia in the right hands of a developer can really capitalize on. It looks like the games that you used to play, 
but it plays up to the par and standards that we have of modern games. And I think that that is an element that is really beneficial to the indie space in that regard. But if we are uh, keeping it in the indie realm, a game that really stood yep. out to me recently that I'm not sure if it was Summer Game Fest or if it was exclusively a, uh, an E3 trailer, but it's this game called Silt from uh, Spiral Circus Games. And it's this... Oh. Yeah, it's this uh, PC game that's scheduled to come out in 2022. Um, and it is, you play a scuba diver that is underwater and you're, the trailer opens and you are chained to the ocean floor by something. And you're like, okay, how the hell are you going to get out of this? What is the deal with this? Why is your scuba diver trapped at the bottom of the ocean? And then you realize that, hey, your scuba diver can possess fish and other creatures that are underwater to use them to solve these sort of uh, environmental puzzles and mechanics. So for instance, the game opens and you're chained to the ocean floor. This light that is in your uh, scuba goggles leaves your body. The diver goes Mm. limp, essentially, like you've lost control of him. And then you control the light and you have the light basically possess a fish nearby. And you use that fish that has very sharp teeth then to chew through the chain that is binding you to the floor. And so it seems that your guy is able to possess all manner of creatures that he comes into contact with. So you've got the fish with big teeth. They can clearly chew through environmental uh, hazards and puzzles. But then you can also possess smaller fish, which allow you to access other sort of areas that your diver can't get to. And then you can jump from that possessed fish to another fish, to another fish, back to the diver. And that mechanic in and of itself so long as there are enough sort of different types of creatures and fish that you can uh, possess that have a multitude of abilities other than sharp teeth and small fish. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think that that's an element that could have real fins in terms of just your ability to traverse environments and the variety of environments. But it also kind of stood out to me as, I mean, we've talked about uh, Inside now at length, both this episode and the episode coming out in a couple of weeks about Inside. Um, the idea of just very simplistic gameplay that is heightened by a sense of atmosphere that is truly in and of itself and the presentation of a strange world that has lots of mysteries that you want to uncover. And Silt, to me, really stood out in this regard in addition to not only its very kind of simplistic gameplay where it's you swim around as a diver or you're possessing fish, but also just the world. The world has this very monochrome look to it and it almost looks like very paper mache-ish in a way um, in terms of just yeah. kind of like almost as if this is uh, like Tim Burton scrapbook kind of. It's just very dark, but very detailed in a way that I really, really appreciate that kind of allows not only detail, but sort of like a uh, brooding sense of personality to come through. I mean, during the, the trailer, there's you can kind of like hear the uh, water underneath uh, the ocean, like bubbling and whatnot. And it's just kind of this constant reminder that you are underwater you are hundreds if not thousands of miles below the the, uh, surface and whatnot and the look but also just the atmosphere i think really came across in a way that it made it seem unlike other games that uh take place in the ocean and uh, i think that that tapped into kind of like a primal fear that you and i share of uh exploring the deep (laughs) sea and whatnot yeah you know and naturally being e3 week and and working through it you miss things and this is something i missed until just you were talking about it there i sort of had the trailer on in background and it's like 
wow, you know, that, that, that does look like an interesting game, without a doubt. And yeah, you know, as I said before, the remarkable thing about um, Oceanic Aquatic Horror is that as much as it, it gives me the heebie-jeebies in the right hands, um, I love it. You know, I'm, I'm really fascinated by it. And to have what almost feels like a cosmic horror sort of vibe to it. And as I mean, the game developers themselves, um, Spiral Circus, uh, define it as being like this void, oceanic void you're going through. So you are basically in this lost place deep in the ocean. And that sounds wonderfully horrific to me, you know, as a, as a concept. And yeah, I, I'm actually very intrigued by that as, as, as a good shout, as I have to say, in terms of games to be picked, because, yeah, the monochrome sort of look to it, as you said, has that very play dead vibe to it, and uh, but also very much its own thing. I think it's definitely a more detailed, more confident sort of uh, look to it, and I, I, yeah, I genuinely think that's would interest me because like I said it, it may be a subject that, that isn't for me in terms of fears but at the same time I love the idea of the deep ocean at the same time and it's yeah I, I really think this would be something I think it comes out next year again another early 2022 sort of game but um, yeah that, that, that is um, that's the joy of E3 week is that you know you, you'll see all this stuff and then someone will go oh yeah have you seen this thing and I know and you you get that and this is very much one of those games I'm very intrigued by this because as you said it has that very atmospheric vibe that played it put across very well and if even half as much gets that sort of thing going then brilliant that is a uh, surefire winner yeah and I think what stands out to me the most is is that it's a world that, and again, to reference Playdead, like it's a world that is familiar and yet something is off. And just mm. from this brief trailer, I'm intrigued enough that I want to check out and I want to discover the root of why this seems off or learn why this world operates in the way that it does. And I think that that is, again, like an E3 week to allow something like this to kind of like fall under the radar in a way. And yet... It's it's not justified in it falling under the radar, right? It's a very much a hidden gem, kind of like a diamond in the the, uh, the rough of oversaturated gaming news that we've been inundated with during E3 week. Yeah, this is it. I, it it's mad because you, you go for a week of doing this, covering it as news, and I, I think even as a general person who, who like it, plays games, you, you, there's so much to consume in terms of that, and it becomes content again, and that really doesn't help the games that need the attention. I mean, I think it's been pointed out recently um, that there were some positive impact in terms of everything that's been going on in the last year or so that um, indie games got a fairer space mm. in terms of big conferences. and But it wasn't always good. I think we were going back to what we were saying earlier about Variety uh, with uh, New Blood Interactive stuff in terms of indie games. And I think of like, you know, to go on a segue slightly here, um, 
I think of the wholesome game show direct thing, which, you know, it's wonderful in the short space of time where you're like, oh, all these lovely games where you just basically do nothing threatening and that's great. But so the problem with that is, is there is a real lack of ingenuity in that space, which means so many of those games are the same. The amount of games that feature cats <laughs> or coffee shops <laughs> or cats and coffee shops right. was just like, you know, it's like, come on. It, it can't all be about that. It can't all be about, you know, right on attitudes and having cats and, and having coffee. It has to be, you, you can do more, you know? I think of um, when you see the outliers in, in that sort of presentation space, that's when it becomes obvious how bad the rest of it is for sort of... And I don't think it's necessarily a problem of, you know, in general. I think it is something that will be worked out in time, uh, very much like horror games in the indie space all jumped on certain bandwagons and carry on and they feed on whatever whatever is popular um wholesome style games that don't require violence you know that, that they need they need the time to have people doing it to sort of establish creativity and, and proper patterns and at the minute there's very droll sort of ideas of what that should be and as a result what last year maybe was a bit refreshing to have this show full of Oh, look, all these games that are very pure and happy and nice. And it is really nice when you've spent most of your free time on games where it involves killing people constantly. <laughs> More so when you're in a horror space, right. you know, where, you know, that is very much the epitome of everything you do. And then you come to this stuff that's all, oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's all joyous and nice and calm. But yeah, the problem is that's a niche. That's a niche that is exploitable like horror was before. And so everyone's going to sort of follow on from what has been done before because no one wants to take that risk necessarily. So, yeah, we'll get there with that. And I think horror, as I said, is sort of having another wave of ingenuity where it's playing with established ideas more. And I think this is good. This is very good. And I think games like this prove that to some degree because Silk, takes something we know from a developer we know and in years past and there have been games like Limbo there have been games like Inside that have tried to do what those games do but without the you know, without the thoughtfulness without the insight and failed but if you can't do that and you're going to copy an aesthetic then you need to come up with something new and I feel like Silk does because it understands more than one thing. You know, it's like if you're going to be smart in this in the indie space in terms of horror, um, you don't pluck from just one spot. You don't you don't say my game wants to be like Amnesia, my game wants to be like Limbo. You know, that this you, you need to take two or three of those and add in your own ideas on top of that. Silk, for instance. Um, has a bit of subnautica to it, has a bit of barotrauma to it. It has a bit of, as we said, that play dead sort of monochrome vibe to it. 
that is the smart way to go because it becomes less apparent that you're sort of cribbing from multiple sources and more like you're making your own thing. And, you know, this is, again, something that wider media is commonplace. You know, nothing is really original. It's just finding a very intuitive way of meshing together different things that have already been done and making it yours. You want to make people think about what they've enjoyed in the past but also make your thing feel like it is a continuation of that, you know? It, you want the inspiration and the influence to be a jumping off point rather than the entire experience. And hmm. if you're not capable of doing that, then it, it uh, is fair to say, why are you then using the influence so heavily? Like you have to have more ingenuity than just sort of like, hey, you remember these games and experiences you and elements you've enjoyed previously? Well, now here they are. You have to have something hmm. that all of those sums including the influence like you have to you yourself put something new that progresses these influences in a direction that you yourself would want to see them in right it's this idea that if you're going to take the influences then you need to take those but then you need to have your own original idea and whatnot in them and i think that silt from that very brief trailer and kind of just what it shows it gets across this very unique aesthetic and then it also pairs with it gameplay that could have some real you know uh, forgive it but uh fins to it uh the idea that if they have the right sort of uh fishology if you will in terms of like a variety of creatures and whatnot with abilities and varying things and then seeing how complex that can get with the puzzles i mean that's a game that i'm definitely looking forward to next year and i think i learned about it an hour before uh, we decided to record so <laughs> it's one of those things where yeah. it doesn't take long for a developer that has a great idea to kind of get their message and their product across but it seems to be a rarity so i'm definitely looking forward to silt when that comes out uh, next year yeah and I, uh, I will point out again that's where it becomes hard and i think if you learn anything from e week is to seek out things afterwards because beyond just the normal shows and sort of looking at their live streams because that, that doesn't often tell you everything and so much gets lost in, in what E3 is and especially this year where everything is digital and people just sort of get exhausted by the sheer number of content. And, you know, that goes back to kind of what I was saying right now, Game Pass and stuff, but like, in the end too much stuff is coming out more than ever in gaming terms you know we, we really did not used to have this much you know and we're blessed in, in that regard but at the same time nobody has the time right. <laughs> you know, to, to go through all this and you don't want to take a risk you don't want to take a gamble you, you want a recommendation and your recommendation is either a paid one in terms of like uh, YouTube coverage, or you know, somebody is going to be paid to promote a game, or, or the luck of the draw that someone who has a job is writing about games or whatever stumbles across something like that, and it's extremely hard because even in that industry, you know, you have to make compromises. You know, you, you can't cover everything, you know, because budgets are small because time is finite and yeah we, it is very much at the point now unless you have a huge amount of money and you're not that bothered about covering the big things and you can sustain yourself that way you're never going to get around to those things that could be missed otherwise and, you know again 
very much like any other medium is, and this is where games have pretty much got to the level of any other medium, is that there is now so much that you cannot possibly cover everything and there'll be stuff that people regard as cult classics that only 10 people have played and that will be it. But it doesn't need to be that way. It's just unfortunately the way it is. And occasionally you'll get the chance. So yeah, seek out those little things. If anything looks remotely interesting, honestly, not so, so yeah, I speak. And, you know, search it now. Give it a chance. And what are you really losing from the grand scheme of things? Waste your time playing anything, watching anything, reading anything, listening to anything, generally speaking. So, you know, it's very rare that you get to watch, play, be some, listen to something that is profound. You know, you do it for entertainment value first. And if you get more out of it, that's wonderful. So, as a result of that, why not take that chance and just try something different? Well, that's one of the benefits of that subscription model, whether it be movies or uh, games, as it were, right? Because then if you're hmm. buying into it and kind of has the perceive the perception of being free, like that's big air quotes, right? Because hmm. you're buying into a subscription. But when it comes at the cost or it seems like it comes at the cost of just your time, and this is something that we've been kind of like harping on and about back and forth uh, over a couple of episodes now, this idea that like, yeah, why wouldn't more people want to try Stalker 2 if they have no idea what the hell Stalker is when they come home Friday and it's like, oh shit, that's on Game Pass. I can play yeah. that. Well, I have to wait for it to download and then I can play it for an hour or two hours. And if it's for me, I'll keep playing it for maybe 20. If it's not, I'll check out something else on Game Pass. There's no shortage of stuff there. And I think that yeah. that is one of the benefits of the subscription model. And especially like, I mean, Silt is coming to PC, but I mean, for people like you and I that searching for indie things that are unique, that are very niche, this is something that's on our radar ahead of its release. But a majority yeah. of people are not going to know what this game is. They're not going to know anything about it. So if it ever did come to console, they might be like, well, am I going to risk paying $20 for this? Or am I just going to play it for a little bit on Game Pass and maybe I'll like it? Maybe I won't. But it's getting the exposure and that's the area yeah. where... Like when it comes out on PC, we'll call that the launch, but then getting that additional launch potentially if it ever came out on subscription service, get a bigger base, players, people that have been enjoying it. And then that generates more fervor and interest in the next thing that uh, the studio decides to make. But yeah, Silt is one of those games that definitely gets uh, buried in the kind of like big releases and whatnot, uh, or big yeah. announcements rather, not releases, but it's one of those things that definitely uh, definitely stands out as being one of the more unique things that I've seen uh, announced over the last week or so. Yeah, and you know, it just it proves that no matter how insightful and in depth you are about the genre, you're going to miss stuff because it is just so big. That stuff, and you know, I suppose, <laughs> ironically, I was thinking about the next game when I was picking here, and I was thinking, well, no, it's not really like this now, and I'm going to feel more a fool. But uh, we've gone down this rabbit hole now. We've we really delved into the idea of indie, and we've championed that, and I'm sure we will again. So, I had two choices here. <laughs> We've got what? Well, this is the eighth choice now, I think. I believe yeah. so. Yeah, so yeah, so it's, it's me, then it's you, then it's me, then. So 
uh, knowing I've got two choices, <laughs> I'm going to be an ultimate wank here and choose the highest profile independent developer there is, uh, Kojima Productions, <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, choose the Death Branding Director's Cut, which, um, yeah, we kind of knew this was coming. And it was a very weird trailer. Yeah. But I um I appreciate the weirdness in this case because it was very much Kojima doing what he's done pretty much ever since he made the original Metal Gear Solid is him saying, I really don't want to be fucking doing this anymore. <laughs> Can we stop talking about it? And that whole trailer for Death Stranding was a mockery of Metal Gear and just saying, look, I could do this. I'm not going to do this anymore. Uh, in the trailer, um, Death Stranding Sam, played by Norman Reedus, is basically in a very uh, Metal Gear-esque base. Camera angles very much shown, all like that. He finds a box, he gets in a box, and gets out of a box. Which is, you know, symbolic of him saying, yeah, Kojima saying, no, I'm, I'm done with this. It's like, I could get back in this box. And maybe if you think of it on a wider level, because Kojima is great at that in making you think like he's thinking of the, uh, saying that is that, oh, it was offered to me to sort of go back to Metal Gear to help out with Metal Gear. But you know what? Fuck it. <laughs> I want to do this like that. I mean, if you take it on the base level, it's just saying the director's cut has a lot more piss taking towards <laughs> his past. And it's like, it's, Nobody, you know, everyone makes a lot about Kojima sort of having this hubris about his art and how he's so proud of his work and all like that. And the whole, you know, Milk Gets Solid by the Phantom Pain was all the Hideo Kojima game, Hideo Kojima production, Hideo Kojima made the tea, he made the sandwiches, he did everything, you know, he did the homework for the kids of those sandwich makers, you know. But at the ground, he loathes himself you know like any good artist does you know he he really detests the fact that he had to make a franchise work and you know which to me personally is why Death Stranding is so brilliant and wonderful as a game because it really did feel like an expression of him finally getting to go oh fucking hell something else I don't care I don't care if anyone hates it or thinks it's wank, or they think it's boring, I will live for the fact that I got to make the game I wanted with the people I wanted and got all my friends from film to get involved in it. And bravo to that man for doing that, you know, and making it that. And I think he plays into the idea that he's that sort of guy, you know, that he is Zack Snyder of video games. You know, that he, he's artistic on a very superficial level, but he's not. He genuinely shows this thing for his past where he's like, nah, nah, this, you know, all oh, that game you think is revolutionary, fuck it. You know, like that. I don't give a shit about it. I, I think I wish I'd never done it. I would do anything to sabotage myself. And it really did sort of ring through. There's always something, you know, like that. Well, I'll try and find an inventive way to do stuff in this, but also I'm going to have this whole bit in it that is going to make people go, why the fuck am I still playing this? (laughs) And 
to me, it's no surprise he loves people like Nicholas Wending Refn, you know, who made films like Drive and Only God Forgives. Who else, you know, as a director, is as close to Kojima as that? You yeah, know, that's, that's very true. Uh, someone who you, people go, I fucking love Drive, or I fucking love Neon Demon, or Only God Forgives, will pretty much say about the other films that was awful. I hate mm. it, you know. And you know, for me, for instance, Drive, really good. Only God Forgives, fuck off, that's <laughs> awful. Neon Demon, great, I love it, like that. And yet, I see people with the opposite views and. So yeah, subsequently I get it and I understand. And he then is friends with actors who have a similar sort of background. You think of Mad Mickelson, you know, he's a cult favourite, but he also a lot of people are like I don't see the point. Mm. You know, like, uh, generally people who only watch Marvel movies and they think, well, oh, he was that bad villain <laughs> in Doctor Strange or Star Wars. It. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> that came to mind only because I just saw. A reason to think about the uh, Black Widow movie where people are put, sort of proclaiming, oh, Florence Pugh, you know, <laughs> nobody's ever heard of her. She's this brand new superstar. It's like, you mean the Oscar nominated actress? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like, who like, did three fantastic movies in one yeah. year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one knows who she is, <laughs> to be honest. But this is the thing, right? I mean, in both of the, the director and uh, the game director and the movie director that you mentioned, right? They're very polarizing. And so hmm. Death Stranding naturally would be very polarizing. Um, and I think that to hear about one of <laughs> this game that some people viewed as being very long and very sort of just like a someone, a developer rambling for many multiple hours and to hear a director's cut, initially you would, somebody like me would probably laugh. But then at the same time, realizing that people that enjoyed Death Stranding and they enjoyed sort of this artist being untethered by a company and whatnot, having the full freedom to explore their creativity. Yeah. This is the best version of what they could possibly want. And I think that there's something to that in terms of, I mean, for somebody like me, who's kind of half in half out on death stranding from the time that I spent with it, it's one of those things where I was like, well, is more of that would more of that make it something that I would finally click with? Or is it maybe more <laughs> more elements from the base game that I'm going to be like, well, no, this is why I kind of bounced off of this after 15 hours yeah. or so. And for somebody like me, maybe a director's cut is not, for, it's not made for people like me. But for somebody like you that enjoyed Death Stranding and really kind of cashed in on that full on, this is Kojima. This is a Kojima game. He's not tethered. Like this is exactly the type of experience that you would want. And I think with him having a director's cut and including more content, I think that if he does not lean into taking the piss out of himself and sort of the uh, shortcomings that maybe he has viewed past projects that he's worked on because of that tethering to a big studio and whatnot, um, I think that this would be the best of both of those worlds in terms of getting a true director's kit. And I mean, yeah, from the outside, it's very funny for somebody like me, who's kind of half in half in on Kojima stuff where it's like, yeah, we're going to get a director's cut for the guy that puts 15, 20 hours of cutscenes in his games. But at the same time, for people that really, really enjoy his work, this is that type of experience where it's like, well, yeah, it's not for people like me. It's for people that are the hardcore fans that want to get more of that. And 
I can only support something like that because how many creatives get that or get that opportunity? Mm-hmm. And I think that that is uh, that is going to be an, an event in and of itself because not many can say that they have this opportunity to tackle something like that. And while it might be uh, more or less for me, the final product, it's one of those things I definitely want to see what it, the uh, end result looks like because there aren't that many director's cuts out there of games. There are. Yeah, there really isn't, and not to the extent I think that this will be. And I know the joke. This, this is the thing. He's an easy target, you know, because of who he is and how he does things. And you know, people are like, oh, you know, well, Kojima censored Kojima, so he couldn't make the cut he wanted. You know, it's like because the only relevance and reference anyone really has right now because of the way pop culture goes uh, in terms of director's cut is fucking Zack Snyder. (laughs) And, you know, people may make that comparison, as I was saying, as saying he is like the Zack Snyder of games. The difference really is that Kojima has proven consistently that he may be schlocky, he may make really crude references and do silly things but he has a profoundness to what he does that sorry someone like Zack Snyder is never going to do and he doesn't have to you know, he doesn't have to make some sort of money shot extravaganza to prove a point you know it's like he can, he will embrace how fucking goofy and stupid he is about things and English isn't even his fucking first language, you know? It's like, and I think he still even writes, he can write better than Zack Snyder. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, in that regard. Yeah. That's not much of a and, stretch. Yeah, you know, and yet, ironically, because it's a different medium, people will take stuff from his games out of context to use as weapons against him to say, oh, look, how's this fucker got this big budget contract when he writes things like, princess fucking beach you know when took mario and it's like yeah honestly watch the whole fucking scene and you will see he clearly knows that he's making a stupid joke and it is the whole scene is stupid on purpose that that is it and it, it just infuriates me in a way that nothing else does in games that he can be so misunderstood at the same time i can totally understand that he is not perfect, that he does stupid things that, that sound stupid, because he does. Because he's given the free reign to do it. You know? He is unfiltered. And as you were saying, and as I've said, I appreciate that so much more in someone who makes games. When you think of so many games they see free, you know, that pretty much stick to a formula, they're being safe. When you, especially in the big budget, big name space, you know, they will always stick to something that everyone's like, yeah, that that hits a spot. That does a thing I remember like that. He really doesn't care, you know. That and this is a guy whose influences are stubbornly obvious, you know, in in terms of what he does and in terms of what influenced him. But he's never well, you know if you really dig into it he's never shied away from it again he he tells you what he loves and why he loves it and that it will probably be a part of his next game you know because that's it you know he used to go on about drive all the time so there was then no surprise that he'd have someone like Nicholas Wendingreffen be in his game you know 
He goes on about Guillermo del Toro's movies all the time. No surprise, he gets his likeness in the game. Norman Reedus, again, again, again. It goes on and again. He's upfront, he's honest about what he is, and people try to make it sound like he's some sort of wanker for suggesting that his games could be anything different. And it's like, he is very much the mixture of a person where he knows what he is, but he's confident enough in it that he can say, yeah, sure, maybe I am the sort of guy that says something that you roll your eyes at, but at the same time, I don't give a shit and I'll do it how I want to do it. And to be honest, the amount of people in gaming that chase the cinematic high, you know, you know, and don't get it you know, because they try to be like a film. You know, he does stuff that he is influenced by film, but he has done so much within that to incorporate the gaming space back as far as you remember uh, with Metal Gear Solid, with the whole stuff on the back of the cart, the, the game case, Metal Gear Solid 2, where he subverts the whole idea of everyone wanted him to make a sequel to Metal Gear Solid because they want it to be Solid Snake again. And he said, you know what? Better than that will make you play as a guy who who is basically pretending to be Solid, Solid Snake, just like you. And you get to see Solid Snake being this badass in front of your eyes. And you know, who does that in game? Even now, who does that sort of shit? You can say he may do it crudely, but I think he does it. You know, he's been ahead of the game on in so many ways. He's not perfect in how he does it, but I think all the best you know, artists in any medium are rarely perfect in how they execute those things because they should be divisive. They should be the sort of figures that people either tell, you know, say are absolute shit or are geniuses. And I don't think there's anything wrong in saying either side of it. You know? Yeah, he's unapologetic, but he's also in on it. And I think that your comparison to Zack Snyder is... Snyder is the opposite, where Snyder is not in on it, and he is the type that thinks that, well, Army of the Dead is an idea that could be spanned for two and a half hours, and then when the consumers get it, we're like, yeah, actually, not really the case. Um, whereas, yeah. if anybody was going to do a director's cut of a game and add more content, I would want it, even if it's not necessarily for me, I would want it to be Kojima, because whatever Kojima puts in there, I feel is very honest, and while it yeah. might not all work, it feels like whatever is going to be included in that is going to be something that is representative of his sensibilities as a game maker, as a game director, and all of these different things that it's like, yeah, not all of it might work, but it is him exploring his creativity. And if that is what needs to be, happen for him to kind of like get the inspiration for the next thing, I'm all for it. Because like you said, yeah. he is in on it in a way that, and to another person that was referenced, like, Nickeling Wind and Refn, I don't think is necessarily. I think he buys into his own pretentiousness sometimes with his films, even though I enjoy yeah. a majority of his films. At the same time, you get something like Only God Forgives, where that is just like so pretentious up his own ass. Everything that I decide to make is the best thing ever, <laughs> at least for me. Uh, it's one of those films where I'm just like, okay, this is somebody that's buying into the sort of fervor that surrounds their more acclaimed yeah. films in a, in a direction that 
it doesn't feel like he's doing anything new or expanding on anything that he has done previously. It feels like he is trying to take the elements of films that he has made that people have enjoyed and then trying to like superimpose that into one colossal uh, NWR sort of uh, amalgamation of his perceived strengths or champion strengths as a filmmaker. But it seems to lack his sort of willingness to be like, well, there are these certain elements of my films that I could maybe expand on or just beginning to buy into what he does in a way that sees himself as almost more than a director or maybe like in the Everest of directors, which I think sometimes comes across as being overly, uh, overly just not ambitious, but I would say just overly pretentious in what he ends up delivering sometimes. Yeah. I mean, we're going on a segue yeah. here to leave from what we're talking about, but yeah, he's very much a director that is a modern Cronenberg, you know? Mm. It's like people are going to not get on with everything they do, and there's a crudeness to that, and people will look back on it and be very critical of that. But there will always be moments in both directors' histories that are like, you know, undisputably great thing and again it's rolling back see i can make this work <laughs> it comes back because it makes it comes back to kojima because he is very much that, that sort of guy where you know there are games he's made that are beloved whilst he still stayed true to who he is you know it just happens that they, they resonate with more people than less in those cases you think of snake eater you know for instance or all the original work is solid where he simplifies enough of it that most people get on board with it whilst he gets to make you know, the, the, the bits beyond that work. But we've done that. That's a very long section for uh, a game that already came out and we didn't really see that much more of. But, you know, we will get back into Kojima another day, on another day when, when the time goes. But your, I think, final pick final, now yeah. uh, uh, of the... Uh, 10 isn't it and it might be a little underwhelming because it's not a game that we were actually shown (laughs) anything of but it is not been cancelled and it is coming sooner than later and that being Scorn from uh, Ebb Software which was announced is going to be again coming back to Game Pass it is going to be a day one 2021 title for Game Pass and this is a game that I have been completely obsessed with since we initially saw it and I think as not as early but as uh, recently as like seven or eight months ago we finally saw a gameplay trailer that was more than like 90 seconds or something like that and that was sort of a walkthrough that further fleshed out the world and for people that don't know Scorn is this horror FPS that is very much inspired by the work of uh, H.R. Geiger who of course did the Xenomorph design for the original Alien this is a world that is basically, I won't say a carbon copy, but it is heavily, heavily influenced by his artwork in kind of bringing this very sort of like disturbing blending of bone and architecture and flesh and whatnot and kind of combining it into one. But then it also has a very Cronenberg influence of sort of organic technology and that our uh, protagonist and player uses weapons and items that are a combination of bone and also this very much alive organic flesh where it's kind of these bone guns and then you reload them by putting in these like living organisms or something. It's all very disturbing and gross and uh, sort of stomach churning in a lot of ways. But 
we don't know much about it, and yet, and we haven't heard much about it recently, but I think it's a big deal that this is the type of game that gets to come to Game Pass day one. It's coming this year, hopefully still, and yet it's a game that we know so little about, and yet it's so intriguing just from the look of it and the little clips that we've gotten from it. And it really is the type of game that I'm surprised is coming to console for starters because of how niche it looks, right? For people like us saying HR Geiger, saying Cronenberg, obviously those are kind of like the Mount Everest of visionary sort of horror in a lot of ways. And yet Mm. to say that this is coming to not only PC, but also to Game Pass and console, that was very unexpected to me, especially for this being a day one title because of how niche, again, its appeal must be. And it's the type of game that people like us that are kind of like hardcore horror fans and hardcore gamers are very interested in already. But it'll be interesting to see how the masses consume a game like this. And I think this is a game that both it consumes the player, but also the player consumes it and just how it is very unapologetic about its influences. And it's also very unapologetic of who it's catering to. And yet it's coming to this mass market service that will potentially draw in a player base that might not normally gravitate towards something this strange and grotesque and uh, just bizarre for a lack of a better word. Yeah. I think um, given how long they've been developing it, um, I'd imagine the fee is fairly small in terms of Microsoft money. So it probably feels like less of a risk to, to uh, take a hit on something like this. Just because, again, going back to the film stream model, you for every 10 horror movies that don't deserve your time that Netflix will re- <laughs> recommend you, I, I think this week I watched two of those, you know, um, in Beneath and whatever that new one was about, um, The Devil Below, that was oh. it. You know, two things that you know, Netflix has been aggressively pushing on me as these, oh, look, we got this, this, you will like this, like that. And both were fucking awful, <laughs> you know, like that, that you know, beyond like, you know, if I paid for them, that would have been bad enough. It almost feels worse <laughs> that, that, that uh, this subscription service has pushed this on me. But, you know, they got them because the premise alone could sell it, you know, and it's enough to sort of widen your sort of content. And I worry slightly that Scorn deals like that mm. because I think of games like Agony. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah, and yeah, that, that that is a very much a game that, you know, it seems to be selling itself on its schlock value rather than on what it is. And I must say, I think Gorn might be better than that. You know, it, I, I think it there's enough conviction in it. But I think Microsoft don't care either way if it turns out one way or the other. And this may be the other side of that coin where I'm not sure if it's a company that will really push the boat out to sort of say, oh, you know, we can make the game we want to make. And maybe just say, well, we've got the money. Why not just release what we know? And because the pressure's on and we've paid, we've been given the money by Microsoft. We've got to get the game out by a certain amount of time. 
and as you said, we haven't seen much of it. That that's the big worry for me with this. You know, you know, we need to see more of it to, to know if it's worthwhile to play. And this is no different from a game like Agony, as I said, which um, bothers me slightly. And that would be a shame because the HR Gaia look is something I am really into. There's, um, it's not even the only game that's sort of done that. There was a game, another game that came out, uh, sort of announced recently that, that had that sort of look to it. And I thought, yeah, it's cool. You know, but that game used it in a very vague sort of sense. Whereas this is very much like, no, we are the game that has the Geiger look. We are the game that incorporates that and the Cronenberg style existence video drama-esque um, style into what we do. But as we've said before, it's all very well having this idea of what cinema does, but you need to execute it in your own way, or at least execute in a way that is, you know, similar uh, to, to your influence. And I think of Videodrome and think, you know, which I've watched again recently, and think how wonderfully subversive it is and how seedy it gets. I, I think of Extents, which, you know, is lighter by comparison. <laughs> Much lighter. Yeah, and yet it still has this remarkable timelessness to it in terms of what it does. And I look certainly like school and I think what what are you selling me? You know? I, I want it to be good. I really do, because I, I'm so into the Geiger art, that style. I, I think if you can make a game work out of that and it really should have by now. And and yet no game has managed it, really. And maybe that's telling because um yeah, that was a singular vision. Whereas this is always going to be the uh, group of people. Yeah, yeah. and I, I will say in terms of comparing it to Agony, I think it's telling that Agony's lead up to its release was very loud and the marketing was loud. And it was like, hey, look at all this kind of schlocky uh, X-rated content we can throw at you. And when I ended up, I think I played the first 20 minutes of that and I was like, yeah, this is garbage. Just like I assumed it was going to be based off of what they sold in terms of the trailers and whatnot. And yes. it is worrisome that Scorn has not showed us very much. But I will say they haven't showed us a lot. But I think at the very worst, that game would be a gorgeous tech demo in a lot of ways. And what I mean by that is, yeah. is that there has been so much work clearly done in bringing that Geiger image to life. And Agony tried to do some of that, but it felt like a imitation. It And you could see that from the trailers. Yeah. It felt very clearly like... This is a bad intimidation. This is somebody that watched Alien, but didn't necessarily go through all of Geiger's art books and things and see the the details and the little things that you would miss yeah. from going through that. But with Scorn, yeah. even if we've only seen gameplay that has very light combat and very light puzzle solving, the world itself, there's so much immaculate detail. And I went through and watched it again today. And I, I struggled to believe that a developer would allow themselves to put so much time and energy and clearly love into bringing that influence to life in a way as immaculately as they have in that trailer 
that they would allow it to devolve into something that resembles agony. I, I think it is fair to see a scenario where Scorn comes out and the gameplay is exactly what you see in the, what little we've seen of it. It's this idea that yeah. you're going to have this very rudimentary first-person shooter. You've got yeah, you got to open this door and then you've got to kill this amount of slug monsters or hellish Cronenberg uh, meetings of flesh and technology that we've seen so far. But even if that's all it amounted to be, I can appreciate still how gorgeous this game looks and the world in which yeah. they have fleshed it out. And to be honest, if that came out on Game Pass and that was what they delivered and it didn't sort of go past what had been teased and what very briefly has been teased up until this point... If it's on Game Pass, I'm not going to view that with the same scorn that I might <laughs> as a $60, $70 title <laughs> might. And that's a plus and a benefit of Game Pass. Again, we're talking about sort of the checks and balances with that. But at the same time, I am not totally uh, my my sort of enjoyment of what I've seen so far and just my intrigue and in getting to see more of it does not blind me to the fact that we have seen almost nothing of this game. It is supposed to yeah. come out by the end of this year and it, it honestly it makes me think of like when we receive uh screeners or we receive game codes for something in such a short amount of time leading up to the release that you could not possibly get the word out ahead of time to potentially warn consumers uh and that's yeah. kind of where i'm at right now i think of uh wild uh wild willies was that the nicholas cage movie with the animatronics oh, uh, Willy's Willy's Wonderland. Wonderland, excuse me uh yeah. but that was something where I received a screener for that, I think, 16 hours before it was released. <laughs> and it, everybody that I was talking to that had received screeners were just like, oh, okay, so clearly there is not the same amount of confidence in this as something that we would receive, I don't know, even four, three days ahead of time or a week ahead of time, right? Because yeah. there's this idea you want to allow a critic to have an adequate amount of time with it, get the buzz out. But if you're going to give them access to it, not only, not even 24 hours before it's released, you don't have much time to consume it. And then, of course, think about it, analyze it, and then write about it and get the word out about it. And yeah, exactly. the idea that we have seen almost nothing of Scorn and it's coming out by the end of this year. Yeah, I, I like what I've seen, but I'm still very, I'm uh, eagerly optimistic about the yeah. final product. I, I think given the long development time, that that is the main concern. You know, it, in most games terms if you've seen very little and it's been a short time you get it maybe they don't want to show something but uh, for you know narrative purposes but here it doesn't feel like that at all and it it in an age where you know you get stuff proved right that when you're like well, I'm not sure about that you know you don't want to have a game that doesn't really show much beyond like we like HR Gaia yeah and that's it you know like that, that I mean because nothing really what else is there you know at this point I mean we put I know we've pointed this out as a positive game and a thing to highlight but that literally is because it has that essence to it you know it is channeling Geiger's art and making a game of it more than any other game has really done, I think, to this point. And you know, that's it. That that really is it. You know, that, and I think that's why it deserves anticipation and excitement. But 
I think it's the only game we've probably mentioned so far that you you can see the reservation on that as well, where you could be measured with it and say, okay, I love the look of this. I think this could be great if they do the right thing. But at the same time, they're not showing us enough given how long it's been, how close it is to release. At the same time, I think that to play devil's advocate to that, at the same time, it's, yeah, we have lots of examples of people that have said, oh, well, we're going to use H.R. Geiger's uh, artwork or aesthetic or influence as a selling point of this game. And obviously that is a selling point of Scorn. But at the same time, this feels like the most thoughtful and meticulous example of that. And I think that something needs to be said about that, whether or not the game, I am totally uh, open, like the idea that the gameplay does not extend more than sort of the bare bones of an FPS, which might be indicative of its lengthy release date, us not seeing a lot of things. But again, a developer that is putting that much effort into faithfully adapting something or faithfully bringing this influence to life in a game, we don't see that a lot. And it doesn't feel like this is no. the only selling point. And I think that had the marketing like there has been very little marketing for this game. We should just say that to begin with when you see something like agony, where it's clear, like we're going to advertise the schlock, we're going to advertise, Oh, look at this dark brooding HR Geiger esque environments that we can do. And yet how true was the influence there? Right. It was only ever surface level. Whereas this again, feels like a deep dive on that. So I'm more optimistic about scorn than I would be, but at the same time, totally realize that like hey there's some major caveats with even mentioning scorn because of the sort of dubious nature potentially of what the lengthy development cycle has led to because i mean we've been taught we've heard about this game for what two years or three years so chances are i mean it's been about three three yeah, years three years yeah. and we've seen less than 20 minutes of gameplay i think at all or anything like that so yeah it's one of those that again I was very happy to learn that this game has not been canceled. It is leaving development hell, but the true quality of what is leaving development hell might not be in line with what we like, but it still exists. And at the very least, I can be thankful for that. Right. So we are on to the last choice of the uh, choices, not the end of the podcast. I know it's been very long, but you know, E3, it's been very long for us, so why should you not suffer the same way we <laughs> There's a lot to cover. <laughs> so, um, very difficult, uh, um, but this was in my initial five choices just because, one, it, it showed something tangible and we know it's coming, you know, and other stuff, we know it's coming, but it's coming later and I have divisive sort of opinions on, on, on it. Um, so just to give a quick recap on what I'm not picking here because, <laughs> you know, we're not going to get to talk about it much and I will talk about it really, really quickly, I promise. Um, I can't talk about Giga Bash, which is like a Smash Brothers meets uh, Kaiju fighting game on PC. Looks really good, but again, don't know enough about it. Scars Above, which uh, is a Returnal Souls-esque sort of game that... Um, see you investigate an alien planet that's really cool I like that that's from Kosh Media and what else do we have Fatal Frames coming back we know that um, Made in Blackwater is actually getting released on everything now you know yeah. after being left on the Wii U which is as good <laughs> as not ever being released <laughs> right so you know 
Fatal Frame might actually come back as one of the, you know, as the key horror genre game series. And it really does deserve to, because while the game isn't the best in that series, you know, it's been a long time since this current generation of, I mean, there's a whole generation of people who've never experienced Fatal Frame. That's, you know, that's and, me. And the listeners can't see, but I'm raising my hand. That's me. Yeah. I mean, getting to see games getting ported to or just coming to current gen consoles and everything it allows people like me who yeah it's great for fans but also horror fans but also people that maybe are like well what's all this about then they get to check it out now and it's like oh cool then maybe potentially it'll uh fund additional sequels or uh restorations of classic ones and then they get the the resident evil treatment right that's the dream that's the dream i'm sure we will talk about that game at a future point in time um, and finally, um, I will talk about Elden Ring quickly because, you know, it was a trailer that really left me cold because it seemed to be going back to the Dark Souls esque group things. And Sekiro had been this great revelation for me who had been bought, burnt out on that series uh, of games where from, from software I was like, this, I, I don't really, really care for this anymore. Dark Souls 3 just did me in it's worse when you review those games you you think those games are hard when you're playing them when the public are there try playing them before you have any public hints and there's no online multiplayer or or co-ops invasion stuff it is horrific and you get less than a week to do it um you know i'm not wonderful at games and that really destroyed me and yet sakura was like the opposite it felt like a game based on your skill level and your learning of how the game played. So it became this wonderful thing. So I was very disappointed to see Elden Ring very much feel initially like it would be that. But I, I've re- more than any other trailer of any game this past week, I have watched that so many times and genuinely becoming a little more excited each time because I think it is learning from Sekiro uh, as well. I'm saying it wrong, it's Sekiro, not Sekiro. Um, and I just, I think it might actually be all right. I, I, but I reserve judgment until the time comes. As, we shall as see. somebody that doesn't play every single Souls game that comes out and takes their time with them, right? I don't play them under the same mm. time constraints, obviously, is somebody like yourself that's had to review it. I mean, I played Bloodborne over the course of probably six months, right? And it was this thing that yeah. I was coming to frequently, but it wasn't the only thing that I was playing. So, and yeah. I was very liberal in my taking considerable breaks from that game for days or even like a week or two weeks at a time, coming back to sure. it and enjoying it in these long stretches. And I saw elements in Elden Ring that I really liked about Bloodborne, which is this very sort of variety of not only kind of like extremely horror-centric monsters, but also this seemed a little more Tolkien. This seemed more fantasy element, mm-hmm. which seems kind of like a beautiful uh, melding of all three big Souls games, right? Bloodborne, Dark Souls, and uh, Sekiro and whatnot. And, sure. and yeah, and George R. R. Martin's influence on this game, so which is quite obvious. Yeah, and, you know, that will be an interesting one down the line. I mean, for me, like you said... My highest enjoyment came at a time where I didn't have any investment and pressure in the series with Demon Souls, the original, 
version on PS3. You know, th that was where I loved that. And it really didn't ever quite get that way again until Sekiro. But, yeah, consider that the runner-up now for the, uh, you know, the 11th place game in the, in this uh, selection because 10th place, and we couldn't not mention it here because it seems simple in a lot of ways to have this, but um, Evil Dead the game. Yeah. Um, again, when I was pointing out earlier about... Uh, you can see a game from the developer and go, oh, I trust them. So, you know, I was talking about uh, Arcane. I said, you know, Redfall. We didn't see any gameplay, but because of the heritage of what that company has done, I'm excited. And while you see a bit more revealed of the game, this company, you know, Saber Interactive, have done World War Z, you know, which was a good book made into a middling movie made into a, a really fun game and this seems like the perfect jump off from that you know um, it has characters throughout the Evil Dead series you know not just the films you know I mean even down to I mean, there are army of darkness characters in this you know and there are Ash versus Evil Dead characters in it and that's amazing it goes through the whole expanse of that history you know, probably doesn't seem to go to the remake but um, the remake wouldn't really fit yeah. right and I think that well, I don't, well yeah I mean, apart from that teaser at the end but it, it, it would uh, be a very, an odd one who's to say you know given they do DLC in previous games why not they may well do it you know as a thing and Sure, but even if it didn't, there is enough Evil Dead in that game from what I've seen in that trailer to suggest that they understand totally what they're getting into in very much the same way as they did with World War Z, where they took the best aspects of a very poor film and made it into a workable game. Here, they're taking a very rich film and TV history and really sort of melding that right into that model again and that potentially could make this much better as a game because they have this aspect of it where you are very much able to replicate the core of Evil Dead's dark humour where you can be a deadite and pretty much antagonise your friends by being an absolute arsehole uh, and that what what is more evil dead than your friends being the enemy and using everything they know against you you know uh, it, it's perfect and it, and nothing speaks more to a multiplayer evil dead game than that for me and you know as much as it pays lip service to the franchise in general um, in terms of characters and settings and that it, it's that little thing that really does it for me you know that um, I like multiplayer games that get the idea that people will be arseholes and embrace that as part of the, the, the fabric of what makes them work the, the games that in multiplayer that pretend like that people won't be absolute shits whether they're on your team or not are 
never going to work for me. Whereas here, this is it. It's a series, you know, Evil Dead, where even people who are friends are still very antagonistic towards each other and will screw each other by accident almost because they are looking out for number one and as a result that usually is to someone being from your friendship group becoming a demon and sort of then <laughs> laying it back on you in, in retrospect and yeah it, that to me is exciting from what they showed that, that to me makes me think even if this is again like World War Z another 7 7.5 out of 10 game it's perfect for what it is it does what it says on the tin it will recapture that evil dead spirit perfectly and you know what the general public may think is like I said a 7 out of 10 game there's an evil dead fan out there that's like this is the best representation we've had of this franchise in video game form and you know not had bad you know uh, not done a bad job so far in the past in terms of evil dead games but this really does feel like, you know, people will die, someone will survive, and we will make this as funny as fuck for you. <laughs> right. And I think that from what we've seen of the gameplay finally from the E3 uh, reveals, it shows that the developer really has a knowledge of the game, of the, the film, yeah. excuse me. And yeah. that's always my worry, and that's always been kind of the general worry, I think, about whether it be movie licensed games or just licensed games and IPs in general coming to games, right? It's this idea that, yeah. oh, well, let's use this, the notoriety and the sort of love of the film franchise or the IP existing and then just slap it into a game and it be this kind of half-assed thing. But I think that this most recent gameplay reveal showing like that the, the, uh, the demon players, they kind of, they get to be that same demon perspective spirit that flies around and can inhabit yeah. different things. Just a little touch like that. It shows, okay, these are people that are familiar with the films. They know the look, they know the feel. And of course, kind of the humor that you've been mentioning and the bleeding of all of the evil dead films, the core trilogy and this TV series into it in and of itself. It's not just, this is a blue ash. This is a red ash. This is a green ash. sort of general, uh, sort of yeah. generalized adapt or adapting of a film IP to the game's medium. It really feels like they are people that are familiar with the IP that they are kind of drawing from, and they're using it in a way that makes sense for the type of game they're making. Absolutely. I will say everything we've seen, I have been more positive on than I would be because I'm an Evil Dead fan, obviously, right? And it feels like they're treating that with the respect and also the uh, fandom that it deserves. At the same time, I can't not think of like the Friday the 13th game, right? Where they nailed the look of that game in terms of like Jason and his role and the abilities he has, yeah. the camper's role and whatnot. But I learned an important lesson from that in that you need more than an IP that you respect and you give a certain amount of love to. You need to sure. have the gameplay structure and roadmap to go with it. And that's my only reservation with an Evil Dead game is that we need to have a multiple multiple environments. We also need to have multiple gameplay modes that have legs on them. It can't be here is four or five maps and we've got two game modes. Like being a realist, the 
novelty of getting to play as certain characters that I love and that I've enjoyed in the films and whatnot, that only goes so far. This can't be an experience that I burn out on in two and a half months, to be honest, if it's a multiplayer game, even if it's not 60 or $70, even if it's a 30 or $40 multiplayer focused only title, I still need to have some semblance of a roadmap for where this can go other than one new character every nine months or one new map every four months. I need to have some semblance of either a progression system or I need to just have a multitude of game modes that give me a variety of experiences based on these sort of core mechanics and core character classes. Um, And I don't know, I don't personally as somebody that again, does not play great deal of multiplayer games. I don't think that those are really unreasonable asks or wants from a multiplayer focused title, but it seems that sometimes games that are drawing from an IP that has a lot of love behind it have a tendency to not necessarily follow through in the long run as much as we would like. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. Key difference here, I think will be that, you know, probably the 13th went through that unfortunate process of the legal battle that was going on in the background and which pretty much killed the game because they couldn't do anything as it turned out and that's horrible for them because all the ideas all the things they might have done with that they were if they didn't they no longer could really be the game they were and what's the point at that point because if you can't update a game that's based on license with the license in mind you're no longer making that game and heartbreaking as that might be and you you know I felt so badly there because they clearly had the ideas to do things and to rectify things but it was never the you know they got so much shit for that game unfairly because of something that was out of their control Uh, and at least with this Sam Raimi has the rights you know you know he has control over this and he's not going to be a dick about that he isn't you know unless someone's really fucking with his product and doing it wrong he's not going to turn around and go no fuck off you know I'm not doing that so I have optimism there I also have optimism because as I said Saber have done World War Z justice you know whilst not justice to the book because I thought it would be a very boring game um it makes you know if you take the idea of what the movies did right and the movie did right it makes for a good game and they did it you know they utilized the best of something that was mediocre whereas this is something that is spectacular for what it was and they've got room to maneuver they've got characters they can still use like I said they haven't used the remake the the you know, Evil Dead Rise will be coming out and that will be a whole new thing. Just on a segue, Evil Dead Rise, as much as it's exciting to have a new Evil Dead film, is that not Demons 2? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it sounds yeah, like, you know, it like, sounds like the basis of Demons 2, yeah. I mean, yeah, Demons in an apartment block. Changing a couple of variables and names, but yeah, more <laughs> or less. I mean, and probably wouldn't have as good a soundtrack mm. either, to be fair. <laughs> very true, very true. But yeah, so, you know, 
there are qualms. I, I agree. It, you, licensed products tend to have that sort of apprehension to them because history isn't kind, you know, as far as it goes. But I think this might be one of those cases where right person, right time, you know, um, everything clicks. I will say that the uh, the movie game tie-ins and whatnot, I don't even know I would call them tie-ins anymore. I feel that they are more or less heading in the right direction. I think that yeah. they are leaving behind that sort of notoriety that they used to have, right? Where it was like, oh, well, this movie's sure. going to be out in six months. In two months, you can play the game version of it and get a head start on what the story might be or whatever. Um, but I think we're leaving that behind because people have bounced so hard off of movie games leading up to this point. But I think that we're yeah. moving away from that. And I think that we're getting developers that are like, well, hey, we don't really want to make our business model. We're going to shit out these video game tie-ins that barely sort yeah. of... Because think about all of those companies and developers that you look at their catalog of games and it's like, yeah, every fifth game is something original and you don't even... You've never even heard of it. And the rest of them are like Garfield games or whatever. Um, but <laughs> it's this type of thing where a majority of those studios now, I feel like they probably don't even exist or they've gone on to make new studios just because their entire business model was we're going to do tie-ins we're going to cash in on these certain things. Yeah, yeah. Whereas now, I, it, at least from what I've seen, it seems to be more people that are picking projects because they have something to say with it or they have an experience to actually be had other than yeah. here's some shit that you recognize or you're aware of and now you can live in those shoes and whatnot for six to ten hours, but it isn't very memorable. And I, I'm glad that we are moving away from that. So... I will say in that regard, I'm more optimistic about something like this than maybe I would have been five years ago or something to that extent. Absolutely, because, you know, the dynamic has definitely changed. You know, um, before it used to be a case of a developer was ha you know, hungry and happy to have work. You know, and like, you know, I think of indie, indie developers at the time, like Mike Biffle, who had to work on games like that you know licensings because that was what the company was doing and now it's a case of like when stuff is offered it's a case of we want it yeah we want to do this because we feel like we could do it you know people are clamoring to do these jobs and and make some, the best out of them whereas before it was a case of it's a paycheck right. you know? and there is the difference it's work there, there really is it I mean for as much shit as it got Square Enix, you know, Idos Montreal um, doing uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy game. You know, it's, you know, sure, they could have done a Deus Ex, another Deus Ex, but they got that and they were happy to do it clearly and uh, they're going to use everything they know to make something unique and Disney are very much a at the forefront of everything in that now where what they used to do was have their own games division to make their games now they're like that they can pawn their franchises out to people to different developers and make money that way whilst having less risk and it works it clearly works you know and it, 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 that is the way forward. That is going to be the way forward for for licensed products now. That um, I think Evil Dead is an example. Uh, we're going to have the Aliens Fire Team game, 
and that's another developer that really is into the franchise that they are being licensed to and you know as sad as that is that that is another Disney franchise now and it that's the way it's going to be you know but at least you can be happy that they are still going to get to do that job you know uh, despite the company behind it we'll say in mentioning Guardians of the Galaxy how do you make that game and not have it be in the style of Ultimate Alliance or something where you get to control every member of the Guardians of the mm. Galaxy. That was the one thing. Like, I I like the look of the game and whatnot, but at the same time, the idea that you're only going to play as Star-Lord is sure. something that stands out to me as being like, what a missed opportunity to not be able to control yeah. the entire squad. But to be fair, if they're able to make that a unique and a as singular as it needs to be to highlight Star-Lord and putting him in a role within that group that feels unique rather than he's the guy that has yeah. jetpack or has jet boots and has twin blasters more power to them if they can make that feel like a unique experience more so than as generic as I just made that sound in describing it yeah I mean yeah I mean to caveat that but, you know they you, you can control the actions of your teammates uh, Mass Effect style uh, in combat so you can sort of do it I am I think after the Avengers game they had to kind of try something different and I think it's, it's refreshing to hear that that's a single player game that's not going to have DLC you're not going to have any micro it's not online in any way and it will just very much be an adventure great because that suits you know, that developer very well I hope they got the AI to back that up because I remember, I remember, I remember that uh, the AI in some of the Mass Effect games was uh, questionable, but got to be a little more optimistic than that, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think nightmares about uh, you know, AI in Resident Evil Five. Then <laughs> <laughs> very, very valid and fair point. So that was our ten. I know it's been a very long time, and we can talk about, it, but you know, E3 is a one-off time of the year, and we we will talk about that. There's still a couple more talking points, hopefully shorter, um, <laughs> that we will talk about. I, I've doomed us now. Um, so there was a few no-show things. I, I mean, this is going to be brief because uh, there weren't that many things. But um, you know, Xbox had their show. Um, they revealed last year State of Decay 3 was in development. Nothing was shown here. Mm-hmm. Um, Capcom had their whole... Um, I would barely call it a press conference. Um, it was a, more like a, a Google Slides presser. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you probably could have found that anywhere. Um, but they didn't reveal anything of the Resi 4 remake. Uh, we didn't see anything of Aliens Fireteam, as we were mentioning before. That was so, a big bummer. Yeah. Talk about really wanting to see more of that, that kind of like fuels that drive to promoting that, because that game comes out in July, right? July or August. But anyways, it's on the cusp of being released. And I feel like, granted, the media blitz that that had a couple of months ago, we haven't seen or heard much about that. And I, w- for me, at least, as somebody that obviously hasn't played it, what I saw, it was a strong beginning. But I was hoping that leading up to release, we would see a little bit more that pushes sure. us in a direction that gives us a little more variety than or rather just the ways in which they're expanding upon the alien universe. Cause there was talk of that, I believe where they're expanding on the types yeah. of Xenos that you're going to fight, the types of abilities and things like that, that you can use in classes and variations on that. 
I was looking for more info on that. I'm still sort of looking very much forward to playing that, probably with you. Uh, But it's one of those things where it's like, I was hoping to see that final drive that makes this something I'm very much looking forward to to something I am 100% buying day of release. Yeah, and it it sounds like they've had a name change to Aliens Fighting Malik. Mm. And... They will be doing something in the coming weeks. Gotcha. Uh, I mean, we'll probably look like idiots now, and you know, Friday, before we put this episode out, it will probably be getting out. Uh, and if so, I've just told you why we didn't mention that. And But, you know, it's... Yeah, the game came out of nowhere. It's rare these days that a game gets announced and it's out in a few months without any real preamble. So, yeah, it is possible. But you know, there were not too many sort of things that weren't sort of you know specified. We still didn't see Silent Hill yeah. in any way, shape, or form. You know, that's a shame. Not even a pachinko machine. Not even. But then Konami didn't do anything. Konami didn't even do their normal yearly uh, "Here's Pro Evolution Soccer" thing. Oh yeah. You know, yet, which worries me. I mean, because, you know, when that's the last thing that they put out yearly without any problems uh, and they still haven't mentioned it in every week, I even that because of me, because, I, you know, that, that's the thing I play every year. But, you know, maybe Sony. Sony is still going to do their show, it seems, in July. So there could be a lot going on there, you know, and, and we could yet see this Silent Hill. There's been a lot of things, obviously, the, this past week where people have been going on about this company being a fake company and it being a Kojima company and it being a Silent Hill game and they've pretty much come out and said, no, it's not. And the evidence pretty much points to it not being anything to make a conspiracy about. But we live in an age where people can make conspiracies about fucking anything if it suits them. So, you know... <laughs> but as it stands, no, we don't know anything about that. So the last thing I think we'll talk about, and sorry, it leaves it on a slightly bum note, but in a piss way, way, um, you know, we can caveat E3 this year being a muted sort of thing because, you know, naturally the pandemic, pandemic has happened. We cannot not allow for that you know that that is a big factor in why a lot of games haven't showed up or some stuff is just not ready to be uh shown further detail as we've mentioned but at the same time there was some really odd decisions you know when you know that that you aren't going to have everything maybe put a bit more sizzle on your steak you know and there was stuff that was just like okay and sometimes there was stuff that relied on the general public not not knowing about games indie games Mm -hmm. and we talked about this a lot this this episode and this very lengthy episode about how you know indie games don't get the exposure they deserve and how people miss this stuff and uh, Something that came to mind very early on was in Ubisoft's conference when they we were finally showing Rainbow Six Quarantine, you know, whatever it was called before. And, you know, 
instantly in, in how they were showing this game working reminded me of the very tough indie game GTFO. Uh, and for anyone that doesn't know, GTFO basically is like you go down multiple levels in this um, hostile environment. There are these horrible creatures that live there and you have to be very careful, very precise about what you do in these places. You have guns, you have melee attacks, but the idea is not to make noise. Try and get through and do your jobs, which is like accessing certain doors and areas without attracting too much attention, but you will eventually attract attention, so you have to sort of set up for like a horde environment at the end. It's kind of like delaying the inevitable in a lot of ways because you yeah. have kind of like a finite amount of resources i believe or ammo pools sure. and things like that so it's like this is it yeah you, you really really are encouraged not to go for it you know and go all guns blazing because you'll end up dead you really in true survival horror fashion i might add yeah and and that in gtfo is fascinating because it is unapologetic you know it you know the developer that has never backed down from that as a uh, part of the process. They want that to be what you get from GTA. It's a very hardcore experience. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It is ridiculously hard, but it's thrilling, you know, as a result. And Rainbow Six Extraction is very much like it was quarantine, is now Extraction. It very much feels like the big budget version of that, you know, where it's nullifying many of the things that make that appealing. And this isn't strictly new. I think there were a few games that did this in various genres where they take an established indie idea and run with it in a very consumer friendly way, which yeah, that that's gonna happen that, again. That happens in any medium, but to me here, it I expect difference in this game. I maybe expected I expected something more akin to Left the Dead with a bit of a Rainbow Six uh, see edge to it. From what I've seen, it just it seems like it is one of the sort of like weekend events or timed events that they have for Siege. Like as somebody that plays a lot of Siege. This is one of those things where I was like, why is this a full-fledged release? And granted, I've only seen, yeah. I don't know, 20 minutes of gameplay, but I was like, none of this speaks to me as being an experience that I would play for more than whatever, a limited release window of a Siege game mode. And there's a novelty in those Siege game modes that I really enjoy. Obviously, there's incentivized, you can get limited unlocks or loot or whatever, but a majority of those events I would not want to play in a regular rotation to what I normally play in Siege. And yeah. from what I've seen, at least, granted, I haven't watched all the stuff that's been released for it. I was just like, there is no way I would play more than three to five hours of this because yeah. they're taking a game mode that I love and the mechanics that I love and applying it to something that, yeah, it looks like you could get some fun out of that with friends and stuff, a little variation, but this is being released as a full-fledged release i believe right standalone where it's yeah. 60 or 70 dollars for a release and it's one of those things where i was like does this come with siege do we know that has that been announced whether this game standalone no, as far as i know it is standalone, a standalone game. which unless they've got a whole lot that they haven't shown us yet it's one of those things where i'm like 
I understand if this comes with Siege and this is like, hey, check out this cooperative zombie-esque mode that's kind of like Left 4 Dead a little bit, but it's more like GTFO and it comes with Siege. I understand that because that's a way to obviously increase the Siege player base in the long run. But if this is just a standalone, you can only play this game mode. This is for sure not something that I'm interested in for a very long time (laughs) until it comes down in price because I'm not a day one on this and I'm not a year one with this probably. Yeah, and you know, I these days I you know just personally I struggle playing stuff on PC, but um, GTFO is genuinely fascinating in, in terms of how it is structured. This really does just feel like the corporate approximation of that, you know, and that depresses me. I I often want to love what. Ubisoft do because they do solid stuff but yeah this didn't do it for me at all and so getting this reveal of what it was turned out to just be this very depressing thing you know which is unfortunate because I'd like to for it to have been a bit more honest and it feels just really does feel sneaky to pretend think almost have the you know have this cocky feeling to it where like well nobody gives a shit about GTFO so you know we can claim this for our own and it it really does feel like that and I guarantee that you could do a thousand interviews with the dev team and it would never get brought up that that was a part of the influence but it's clear it is clear it is an influence this would be you know all of what you just said is completely true and that it would not shake uh, we would not the game itself would not be able to shake that but I feel like it's more they can get away with it in a way where it feels more acceptable if this is a DLC pack of some sort or this is like an extension of game pass not game pass but of uh, a battle pass or whatever something that is an event that you buy into yeah. and you can play this new game mode and it's an extension of this but to sell this as this is its own standalone 100% experience it does feel disingenuous in a way where it's like this is clearly reactionary to something that is a fantastic idea that is never going to flourish to the same extent that something with the Tom Clancy name will because this is it GTFO is a very niche hardcore PC game. Yeah. And which yeah, they're, they're proud of. You know, they're, they're happy to be there. No, of course, of course, yeah. That's not a knock, that's just the reality of that and like I'm thinking about oh, yeah. GTFO and some some people jumped the gun and said, "Oh, it's probably going to come to consoles." And then the developers were like, "We have not announced anything about consoles." And mm-hmm. in the future, I don't necessarily think it's a stretch to be like it'll probably come to console, but I find it hard to believe that it would find the same audience on console that it could on PC. If anything, I think that would be impossible to say because it's so niche and so hardcore. And yet when you take that game model and you slap Tom Clancy's name on it and the Rainbow Six name on it, all of a sudden more people will buy into it. And I have a feeling that the Rainbow Six equivalent will not be as hardcore. It will be more resemblant of siege to a certain extent in terms of like the structure of character classes and all of this and yet 
it's a watered down or sort of a bastardized version of what GTFO is. And yet it's yeah. not paying the proper homage or the proper credit to where it got this idea from in the long run, it seems. Yeah. And yeah, I, I hate to say that a big studio because yeah, we know that many of them take influence from lesser things and uh, things that uh, came out in on a lower budget. Uh, we discussed this with Resident Evil when we were talking about Village, that, you know, and the history of Resident Evil, that, you know, that series wouldn't be where it is now if it hadn't been for the indie games that had come before. But I think because of the genre, there is much more importance thrust upon those games that made that difference, you know? Uh, whereas when you jump slightly to something else and you build on your own thing and steal someone else's ideas to sort of top on that, which I feel like uh, Extraction have done, where, you know, it's like, it's Rainbow Six Siege, but horror, you know, but they don't say the horror part has come from a very unique game, you know, and um, I don't think it will suffer the developers of GTFO any in the long run but at the same time I don't think they'll get any benefit out of it you know you know which I think should always be the case when something has copied something else or been influenced by something else that you should get some sort of benefit out of that when a bigger company comes and takes your ideas and thrusts them into the general public you almost owe it to say that and to uh, it's not just me projecting this or you projecting this this was a trend on Twitter the day that this was announced and this game was announced that people were saying this is GTFO you know it's not just us this is people realising that so it needs to be addressed by you in my opinion uh, as a, a factor, you know, so the, they can't be snobbish enough to believe that people would just accept that it was their own clever idea. And especially when I am confident in saying that it would be is better done by the original, original developers, you know? Yeah, I mean, if you play a single round of GTFO, you see the depth there and you see the mechanics that there that you have to play it a specific way or you have to at least gravitate towards a specific sort of approach. It can't be this sort of like run and gun wild thing. It really is one of those games where you benefit from working together. Teamwork. Teamwork is the core of that. And from what we've seen, I think of the Rainbow Six equivalent or copying of, it just, it doesn't feel that it has the true ethos of a GTFO experience, which it's so clearly copying or deriving far too much influence from yeah. and not mentioning or referencing. And you're right. It, yeah, that does rub me the wrong way. This idea that you're, it is one thing if they are going to reference the fact that, Hey, this is where we're drawing inspiration from. And I think that certain games, like we talked about uh, silt earlier, that's a game that clearly is paying homage to things like Play Dead's games. Yeah. You can't look at that. It was the first thing I thought of when I saw that trailer, but it does more than that. And that's an example of a game that is taking a certain influence, 
and it's making it its own thing. It has something to say yeah. other than just these influences. And they don't even have to say it because it's so apparent. But with something like this, it's just like, okay, this looks like a watered-down version of GTFO, and you're using the sort of benefit of the size of Ubisoft, the brand name recognition that you have and whatnot, and you feel that that disqualifies any instance of having to reference an influence. And yeah, that does rub me the wrong way. And that's one of those things where it's like, are they even going to support? How can they? This is the other thing that I don't like about this situation in that they have Siege. That is something that inevitably is going to get a next-gen sequel. And I think for the short term, they are going to keep continuing to support it on the last-gen game on the current-gen consoles. But inevitably, we will get the equivalent of Siege 2. This is not yeah. Siege 2. And the idea no. that they are going to support this game, the same amount they are going to support current Siege or Siege 2, and support these two simultaneously with the same amount of fervor or just enthusiasm, I think is bullshit. I'm willing to call bullshit on that. There's no way that they are going to support this game. The length that they have with siege or just in terms of the types of content, I seriously see this as being sort of a reactionary sort of cash grab that, Hey, we've seen some success in the indie space. We'll capitalize on this and maybe this will help finance or funnel um, funding into the next evolution of Siege. And I don't like that this is being released as a full-fledged standalone title because there's no way this is supported as one. And the fact that they are trying to present this as being the next evolution in Rainbow Six when this is clearly a fad and reactionary, I think is bullshit because there are going to be a ton of people that buy this as if this is the next Rainbow Six when this is the next short-lived experiment in Rainbow Six, and it's not being presented as such. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's it. I mean, we we could go on for a long time, but we've been going on for a long time. We're getting so. pretty fired up about this, Neil. So we could go on about this for another thirty at least. But it's best if I we know. move on. I'm sure when the game comes out, eventually uh, we will have that discussion. But um, in the meantime, there are other things that sort of baffled and bummed me out. You know. Um, one of the biggest franchises in the world in terms of horror games um, had a very interesting E3, Resident Evil. Um, <laughs> you know, before we even got to the games, we had Netflix having this whole uh, tie-in show to E3, which Jeff, you know, Jeff Keighley showed up on. Uh, so it must be free if Jeff Keighley shows up on your show. And, you know, the first big, strange, very provocative move was um, the announcement of the long announced, you know, long predicted, I should say, uh, Resident Evil Netflix TV series, live action wise, um, which, you know, the synopsis for that had gone, gone around a few times in recent years and sounded awful because it sounded like Riverdale, but Resident Evil. And, you know, nothing against Riverdale. It's to say that um, as a Resident Evil thing, no, sorry. But this did. And clearly the first point made about this uh, announcement was that um, Lance Reddick was announced as Wesker in this series. 
which I have no problem with. I already did. I think Lance Riddick is great. He has the right tone and gravitas to make something as campy and theatrical as Wesker as a character work. Brilliant. That in itself was inspired casting. I, I think that's great. The show surrounding that, no. I, I think that is pretty much confirmed now that is the show that they're making, this Riverdale-esque show. No, not having it. That is, I think, um, October Rourke, you know, who uh, works for site Rely on Horror, has pointed out repeatedly that, that you know, they all, there's always this very apologetic tone to Resident Evil adaptations uh, where they say, you know, oh, you know, this time we're, we're doing this fresh new take on Resident Evil. And it's like, they're always nearly that, you know? They don't really actually ever go for what Resident Evil is, which is bizarre, you know? It's just how many times can you adapt something and never actually capture the essence of what it is? It always seems like they're skating around a straight-up adaptation of the original Resident Evil game, and we've never Mm. gotten that. I don't think we've ever I don't think we've ever gotten that in terms of film or animated film and it seems so obvious and they dance around it and yet they've never done it ever. No. And <laughs> and yeah, you know, I mean promises promises um November's welcome to Raccoon City does seem to be getting closer to that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, I'm sure there's a way they'll, they'll mess with that but <sighs> it's you know, uh, when you go back to the Paul W.S. Anderson run and all those films and how they bastardized so many characters. and This is a rare occasion where I can get behind a re- rebranding of the character. You know, uh, like I said, Lance Reddick and Wesker works for me because of who he can portray as an actor fits Wesker's character because the character itself is never about appearances to me um, you know ironically Anderson's films had a very accurate looking Wesker who was fucking awful <laughs> you know and yet here we are Lars Reddick is the opposite he is Brilliantly, Wesker, in terms of I know what I know he can do, but he is stuck in this Riverdale bullshit, right. you know, and that's going to reflect back badly on him when it shouldn't do. Yeah, he's going to get. And, he's going to get. I mean, they just announced he's in it, and we've seen which we don't need to dwell on the bullshit uh, backlash to him being announced as Wesker. We don't need to even highlight that because I, I'm pretty sure anybody that's listening can kind of guess what people have been bitching about in terms of Lance Reddick being cast as Wesker. But I would agree that, yes, he is being dealt a shit hand because he is being cast in a Resident Evil series that seems to be so at odds with what a Resident Evil series should be that Hmm. he is going to get backlash no matter how good of a performance he does, which we know that he is capable of. And even seeing him as a bad guy, I think would be fantastic. It's going to... 
This is what I'll say in terms of Lance Reddick. I would like to see him as a bad guy, and I think that he will be a highlight in a very otherwise underwhelming series um, in terms yeah. of just what we have heard so far about the tone and the direction of what the series will cover. I think Lance Reddick will more than likely be a highlight of that, which makes me want to actually watch something that otherwise, if he was not in it, I would probably not want to see or have a long-form discussion about. But with him yeah. at least being included, it gives me an incentive to want to seek it out and watch it and potentially have a conversation about it, which I think we should because it would be interesting to, uh, even if it is a Rivendell-esque rendition of something that we uh, have a deep-rooted love for, I think that it would be still at least interesting to see what that looks like because that's a wild-ass sentence to say and we haven't at least seen that up until now. Yeah, I mean, we've seen Resident Evil done wrong. You know, and, a few examples of that. Yeah, so why not? You know, why not give it another shot at seeing it done wrong, but maybe, maybe right, you know? And I think the, the, the benefit it has, that series now, is that two things are happening. You have the CG series, Infinite Darkness, which actually does incorporate Resident Evil lore and characters into it. And then you have the Welcome to Raccoon City movie, which you know has established characters, seems to promise events from the first few games. So maybe, yeah, maybe, the, you know, it doesn't matter if this is a disaster or not. Maybe there are, it's good that it can experiment and try different things because it could end up becoming the best part of it. And it would look better on it if, you know, the movie is shit and Infinite Darkness is shit. And it turns out to be the best thing overall, despite being very different because of someone like Arts Reddit, you know? But this is it. That is the, the wonderful journey of Resident Evil as a Resident Evil fan is that uh, whenever it is adapted beyond games, or even in games, you know, you never quite know what you're going to get. But, you know, whilst we're on Resident Evil and, and baffling, strange uh, things, you know, Capcom did a very uh, muted set, if you will, at E3. And I think I, I was fully expecting that there would be nothing of value at the uh, Capcom event this year at E3. Not just because of what had come before in, in terms of E3, but because Capcom were very honest beforehand about, nah, we're, we're not, we promise you, we're only talking about these games, and that is it. And they did. They, they were very true and honest. Unfortunately, everyone sees those things and you end up, <laughs> you know, you end up with that problem. But all the same, it was very bizarre that when presenting Resident Evil footage, that, you know, they showed two things, right? And they showed a trailer for Resident Evil Village that everyone had already seen and is very spoilerific, by the way. And then, you know, when they actually had juicy new information about the game, and again, I get, given the 
time we are in and you know that not everything is easy to sort of work out it was very odd to just have this image that just said we're making DLC for Resident Evil Village alright because you told us to not, not because we already had it planned we're doing it because you moaned at us and it was like well that's nice <laughs> so, like, thanks but, for confirming exactly yeah. what we all kind of fucking expected based off of the phenomenal sales figures yeah, yeah it's like do you really need to have a half an hour event to tell us this because everything else you've had at this event we already knew you know, it, it was just a series of uh, you having this lady presenting stuff going isn't this great what Capcom has done wonderful isn't it Monster Hunter Resident Evil brilliant like that and it was it, it was pretty much we have made this game you know it's coming out or it is out here's some stuff on it it was it was among the most pointless events of the entire week and I think it's telling that I forgot it was even part of the week until someone was like it's coming I was like I mean, they've pretty much told us what it's going to be, and I, I don't want to get my hopes up. And I was right to be like that because it really wasn't that kind of thing. But the pure disdain of just sort of mentioning it like that and just sort of saying, we're going to make DLC for Resident Evil Village, you know, like that. So. But also because it's so reactionary that you know that it's not going to be what actual fans of Resident Evil Village would want. It's going to be what streamers, the cosplayers want, you know? I think we both know who the DLC is going to revolve around, based off of... I, I mean, mean, I would I would be very, very surprised if it's not about Lady Dimitris. Yeah, because what has been the central complaint probably about Village is that this character that was at the forefront of all the marketing is such a minuscule part of the game in the grand scheme of things. And I think that is one of the main complaints of Resident Evil Village. And they're like, well, we'll flesh out this now uh, iconic character that is only in a fourth of the game, even if that. And I think that it would be a very big surprise if she is not the focus um, in some way. I I would be very surprised if she is not the queen of the whole thing. But... In an ideal world, I would have Mia be the protagonist of any DLC. And, you know, I would have any of the other lords be the focus rather than Dimitris because I don't think you save that. You know, I I think while um, general fans who want more of that and who want to have more excuse to cosplay or make content around that character would be excited and exalted to have more of her I think in benefit of the overall story there was more to say about Heisenberg uh, about Moreau about Benefiento they all had things that would be really cool to see the origins of you know more than that 
because the Maiden demo was basically like the origin story for that, you know, for, for that section of the game. And we don't need any more of it. We really do not. And so, yeah, give us anything but that. I don't think it's going to happen just because Capcom, as smart as they have been about everything, and this is generally in terms of sales would be a very smart thing. Uh, they aren't going to go with those things because they aren't the money makers. You know, people will make them, they will make more money out of people beyond that will make more money out of more Dimitres. That's it. My feelings on DLC have always been, I want you to give me four to six hours of an experience that has some semblance of a resemblance to the main game. Mm. But at the same time, I want you to use that four to six hours to give me an experience that is somewhat different. So having Mia be in the role of the protagonist, there's the potential to have an experience that differs from Ethan's. Yeah. Granted, I don't believe that they're going to go in that direction. I think it's going to be either Ethan focused or if you are in the shoes of Mia, she's going to play just like Ethan. She's going to have the same abilities to a certain extent. And it's going to be an experience that other than saying, hey, this is Mia, it's just going to be more Resident Evil Village. I don't know how you want to say it. 1.5 experience, right? It's going to be more of what we're familiar with. Get a little bit of backstory that we didn't get. And then we're going to be on our way after five or so hours, um, which yeah. would be a missed opportunity because I think that there are ways that they can deviate on the core of village by giving us a new character that plays differently, different abilities to this extent. I'm not saying like the entire thing has to be stealth based or something as the drastic as that, but they no. can come up with something creative and realize, Hey, we've got a different character. We can amend gameplay in a way that it doesn't make this just a, basic continuation or $20 continuation of the core experience because that would very much be a wasted opportunity that is just reactionary to the success of Village and saying, hey, we'll give you two hours of new story content in a six-hour package that is far too familiar, but a majority of people won't give a shit because they want that extra two hours. Exactly. So, to bring us to a final point, which is humorous and sad, uh, in the same light um, you know it's not strictly horror in the traditional sense but it's cultish uh, gaming you know blood and guts gaming and yeah that, that falls within awesome requisite um, Gearbox you know they who make Borderlands um, had a show which in itself straight away was like what are you going to do yeah, you know, you've already done the next-gen version of Borderlands 3. You're not going out some new Borderlands, clearly. Uh, the only two things you have on the table currently are Godfall, which was a monumental flop on PS5, which proved true because they made a PS4 version part of their announcement. Um, and your movie version of Borderlands, directed by, you know, Trevor at the name, Eli Roth, yeah, and instantly it was like this feels like it's going to be car crash television if you will and true to its word it really was because um, imagine you are a game developer who has 
what, 40 to 50 minutes to sort of showcase what your games are about, what you can do, what magic you can create. And the head of your company is like, nah, fuck that. We're going to take 30 out of your 50 minutes about me wandering the wandering around the set of the movie version of Borderlands trying to get people to talk to me because I'm such a deeply unpopular person it was awful I mean people have opinions of people like uh, Kevin Hart yeah who is in the uh, Borderlands movie and yet his uh, meeting in that conference with um, Randy Pitchford who is the aforementioned cringy, embarrassing person was painstaking, you know? You, you had a guy in Randy that is desperate to be this big cheese, this big swaggering Hollywood producer type. And he goes to Kevin Hart to try and make that point. And even Kevin Hart is there looking very much un- like an uncomfortable figure, like, I really don't want to be doing this. And I, I and can't even mask that he's willing to entertain this nonsense. Yeah, and he tries. I'll give it, I mean, Christ, it's some Kevin Hart's best acting in his career to try and make it seem like he gives a shit about what Randy Pitchford thinks. It was just, it was so horrible. But the worst part about the whole thing was that we didn't learn anything about the film. Oh, oh, and it was just a loving for Randy Pitchford to sort of go, here's these Hollywood people I know. and A loving that didn't work. Said, yeah, I mean, and the worst point in the entire thing is we had Randy Pitchford and Eli Roth having a loving on screen at the same time. It was like, nothing in my ever has made me not want to see something in my life quite like that. Because I I really enjoyed Borderlands and those games, you know. And Randy Pitchford is such a horrible bore of a man. And then you factor in Eli Roth, who you know I get that he get. Sorry, just sort of um contextualize this for American audiences. What is a budget um, supermarket store in America? Uh, like Market Basket, Stop and Shop, or Star Market. Sure. So Eli Roth is like that. He's that version of Quentin Tarantino. You know? Well, I think in that regard, he would be like a Big Lots version of Quentin Tarantino, which... <laughs> But, you know, it's like he wants to be provocative, yeah? Mm. He wants to be that kind of guy that has an edge to him and he can make and balance uh, blockbuster principles with that, you know? But he's shit at all of it, yeah. you know? And somehow he has a place... Uh, a plinth in, in in the horror community 
because I don't know. I really don't know why. Because I, I don't get why he is um, this big thing. But I think it was when he decided that he was going to make this kind of like very provocative schlock at the time period when it came out. That was very mm. much a sort of a novelty that was embraced and was and was viewed as being a standout voice in the realm of horror at a time when yeah. it was not the norm or perhaps he was just the loudest voice doing something that was already being done. Um, he was, he was, and this is where my Tarantino uh, comparison comes in because he, like Tarantino, was very much vocal and enthusiastic about his influences and why he did what he did. But um, he never had, I found at the time when that was all happening is I'd read books, horror books, that were more um, aggressive, more evocative than that. There have been films that were more they, evocative of that. Yeah, and yeah, and it just made it horrible to see this guy succeed almost. I, I gave him the benefit of the doubt at that point and was like, yeah, okay, it's nice to see that someone is getting this recognition but it, the minute certain people in that frame sort of gave him that recognition including Tarantino you know it, it became a point of contention for me where I didn't want to know because it felt like they were just pushing him to a, a level he never was and stuff like Cabin Fever felt like oh yeah, yeah okay he's done something a bit odd but it did really when you step back from a film like that it feels like budget Tarantino you know it, it's like oh I have an understanding and I love this genre from all its schlocky roots and, and I get it it's like but you know when people talk about Planet Terror in the, the uh, in the grindhouse thing, where that's the film that's always viewed as being the, the shit one, the two, uh, because it feels too much like someone taking a modern direction on uh, modern money-focused direction on something that was very much based in something that didn't have money and had to rely on its ingenuity, yeah. and. Which, sure, fair enough. I, I don't agree with that. I think, you know, Robert Rodriguez does a great job in what he does in that, in, in trying to replicate it. But, yeah, I get the idea that it feels false, that you're trying to provoke this uh, long-dead image of the video nasty. And Eli Roth's films have always felt like that. You know, that, that, that like they are always trying to be born of a genre a time that they weren't in you know and um yeah i was gonna say yeah it always feels like it is trying to evoke something from a bygone era and treating it as if it is the first time anybody has ever done a certain thing and i mean it's a it's funny uh eli roth is from my hometown so every time we have yeah. a conversation about movies in the larger <laughs> sense of something it, he always comes up and it's always like yeah this is and it's always somebody that it's not their fault. They don't know much about movies. I always think back to like school because he was from my town. So they're like, yeah, Eli Roth, you know, he's a great filmmaker. He's a champion of horror and he's revitalizing the genre. And I always have to sit there just like grinding my teeth to dust and just like, yeah, he's, 
fantastic. But having to hear that all through grade school and everything was always fun. But yeah, I think this whole Borderlands thing was always... It, it's always been indicative to me of a creator or a studio head that thinks that they should be bigger than what they have had a hand in or what their studio has had mm-hmm. a hand in. And when has that ever been the case? We've never had one of these people that, well, I mean, to be fair, maybe Kojima. Kojima is as big a personality as the games he's created, but, oh, but you can't compare Kojima to somebody like Pitchford because Kojima, again, as we have highlighted, was somebody that was always very much in on the joke at times and whatnot and has never allowed yeah. the ego to truly kind of soar to unsurmountable Randy Pitchford uh, heights, if yeah. you will. He knows, he knows self-loathing. That, that, that's, the, that's the difference. Uh, like Pitchford doesn't know it. You know, someone like Eli, Eli Roth doesn't know it. There you go. Yeah. It seems that those two are, uh, are destined to work together as they are. But yeah, I think that yeah. it was a very standout what the fuck this has nothing to do with the rest of E3 and this is a waste of everybody's time to kind of capitalize off of uh, Capcom showing us a Google slide Google slide doc basically just saying hey village (laughs) stuff is coming but I think overall I mean this was one of those E3s where I just saw so many games that I was excited about and yeah granted most of them were coming out of the Microsoft side of things but it was just so nice to see several games that I assumed were either going to be in development hell or they were just canceled for lack of a better word. But yeah, to see them be having seeing the light at the end of the tunnel of their release and even some of the indie stuff that we've mentioned, uh, especially something like Somerville, which I'm just so excited about. And again, it's you got to wait until 2022, but at the same time, I would rather hear, hey, it's going to come out next year than like, oh, this is something we're thinking about for two or three, four years down the line. Um, It's nice to have so many titles to be excited about. And again, coming back to the idea that there's there's so many games now, we're so blessed to have all of these games, but it's now trying to find the time or the budget to uh, play them. But that comes back to something like Game Pass, where it's like, hey, this is going to be on this service day one. You can experience it as part of your uh, subscription, but I will say that this is a, uh, as always, it's a great time to be a gamer. Yeah, this is it. I mean, if if you truly care about um, horror game genre, this is a very fruitful time. Yeah, and but I I mean, like that, you really have to care about all kinds to really get the most out of it. I think that that there is um, that need. You need to know that it is beyond just like shiny graphics and great sound or that you need to have an appreciation for more than that if you're going to get the most out of it and not feel the burnout from uh well here's another this and you know that in itself is the biggest problem as we said that you know there are so many games even if you uh, push away every indie game and just concentrate on the big you know the mid to big budget games there's so much going on that even that is a lot for the average budget and attention span it's a risk reward system you know you, you want to find something fulfilling and it, it makes you more judgmental maybe towards something that is pretty okay you know because 
like with any other medium, you will not ever see the bottom of the barrel. You, you will never see the more experimental, inventive side of things because you don't want to stray too far from what you know and your budget won't allow you to. We had uh, plenty of uh, plenty of reveals and further reasons to uh, tackle some of these games that are coming out until we can talk about them for Safe Room in the future. And mm. I'm very much looking forward to that, as always. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we've, we've had a wonderful time talking about this. We've talked about so many games, <laughs> so many different subjects. And, you know, I apologize to anyone that is groaning uh, or has groaned about the uh, length of this episode, but it's E3, it's mostly, I promise you, unless something really profound comes out, this is as long as an episode gets for Safe Room. It, it is um, something so perfect for this sort of time of year. Uh, we, we are trying to encapsulate a very large and grandiose part of the year, and it, we are still very much hit the tip of the iceberg here. As it seems, but it's an iceberg we'll explore uh, throughout the year and the following year when uh, we get some of these games in our hand. But as always, Neil, it's a pleasure uh, talking games and specifically horror games with you. Yeah, it is very much so. And uh, I roll on to next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. Please consider following and rating the show on your preferred podcast platform. And for updates on the show, follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next week.